Welcome, everybody. No, this is not Breaking Points. <laughs> this is Crystal, Kyle, and friends. We are in the Breaking Point studio today. Don't ask. A lot of stuff going on, wildness, madness, just, behind the scenes. It was just easier. Just understand, it, perhaps <laughs> things are not, uh, you know, as simple as they appear. It's always, everything's always a headache, everything's always, I mean, it's, it's tough to make things run smoothly. Anyway, but this set's lovely and wonderful and beautiful, and so I'm happy to be here either way. Crystal, good to see you. <laughs> I say that as if I wasn't just with you for the past, like, however many days. <laughs> good to see you too, sir. Mm, yes. Welcome. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I'm excited about the show today. We're going to talk to Ari Rabenhoff. He just wrote a great, like, insider's account of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Interesting thing about Ari is he's kind of, like, out of D.C. world now. Right. And so he's pretty free to say what he thinks about the campaign, what he thinks about what's going on with progressives in Congress now, what he thinks. I mean, it, really, he's a very interesting, insightful character about exactly how D.C. works. And... and Understand, we both, you know, we're biased. We love Bernie Sanders. That's obvious. Everybody knows that. But I have my criticisms. I have my disagreements. And perhaps we'll put them yeah, we'll to Ari, that. who no was inside the belly of the beast. And he was with the man himself the entire time. Yeah. So maybe we'll push on some key strategic errors and other things. So yeah. we'll find out. We'll, def we'll definitely get to that. Um, but we want to start with, obviously, the massive <laughs> bombshell news this week is the leak of a draft opinion. Um, looks like the Supreme Court almost 100% sure to strike down Roe versus Wade. Wait, and what's Roe versus Wade? <laughs> I, never, I, never, I never heard that. You haven't before. heard of it yet? No. Google it while I'm talking okay. and then get back to me. Um, anyway, and in very strident language, um, in an opinion that you know could even jeopardize the foundation of things like gay marriage and you know put back in play like anti-sodomy laws and all sorts of things, so earth-shattering leak and everyone has been reacting to this including one joe rogan who led his recent podcast with his reaction now i haven't seen this yet yes so i don't know what the heck he's gonna say yeah all right so, so go let's ahead. go ahead and take a look so apparently uh, abortion's illegal again right <coughs> what happened what here did you hear what happened not no. just here no there's a <clears throat> a leaked memo apparently some someone leaked something that says that they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, I don't know if it's real. Everyone's already commenting on it as if it is real. I don't know if it is real. But apparently what that means is that it's going to be up to the states. So people who live in states where uh, abortion is already, you know, like blue states, I don't think they have a worry. But uh, other states probably do. You know, it's kind of... <sighs> hey, medical tourism. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's, it's, it's fucking weird, man. It's, it's weird people telling other people what they can and can't do with their body is weird because, you, like, Texas is a weird law. No, I shouldn't say a weird law. A terrible law where it's six weeks. Who the fuck knows they're pregnant at six weeks? You just missed your period. Like people I just your... found out I had COVID. Yeah, exactly. Could have been exactly. Could have been a baby ago. And girls who have irregular periods, that happens all the time. I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a vagina. But uh, that's what I hear. I hear it happens all the time. And so for the longest time, you know, people have dealt with that and just sort of live their life and take a pregnancy test. And now you find out that you're pregnant. You literally have like a fucking week to find a place, get an abortion. If you want to get an abortion, make a decision. You have to make a decision, you know, like. But the um, the thing that I'm thinking of is people that have like if something happens to you, like what if you get raped? What if, uh, what if, you know, anything like that? Or what if, uh, you know, some, uh, like a family member molests I, someone? I, I used to have a bit about it, but it's a, it, yeah. it's a talking point. Like, how is it, 
How should it be uh, okay in cases of rape? That's like saying a fetus yeah. is a living thing unless his dad was an asshole. Right, 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 How right. How is it right. the baby's fault his dad was a exactly rapist? right? How is it the baby's fault that? But what if it's your father or something fucking crazy sick? Yeah. You know, it's just I just don't like. You know, I don't like people telling other people what they can and can't do. But it gets weird when the baby gets like six months old. You know, it gets weird when they're really, really pregnant because in some states, for the longest, I don't, I don't know what the rules are now, but I know that some states had late-term abortions. And sometimes you need one for medical reasons, right? Like the woman could die if she gives birth. Like it's a decision that people have to make. Well, if you look back, what was your favorite part of being a fetus? Ah. Well, what was your favorite part of being three? You know, should I be able to shoot you at three because uh, I don't <laughs> want to take care of you anymore? It's one of those things. It's like I am... 100% for a woman's right to choose. But as a human being, just as a, just a person observing things, there's a big difference between a little clump of cells and a fetus with an eyeball and a beating heart. And for anybody to pretend there's not, is it's, you're not doing any But argument. where do you draw the line? Right, where do you draw the line? Yeah, yeah that's the question. So what do you think of that, Kyle? So, uh, first of all, I actually think he was very nuanced in his commentary there. I think there. so, too, yeah. Um, now, I actually happen to have the statistics because I talked about this earlier when I was uh, covering a, a different segment about Roe v. Wade. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute looks into this, and 98% of abortions, 98% happen before 21 weeks. Before 21. 89% happen before 13. Mm. So in other words, wow. it's really only it's 2% or even probably less than 2% that are actually late-term abortions in the country. Yeah. And the way it worked under Roe, for, those, for people who might not know, is they set up the trimester standard. And so for the first trimester, you have a right to an abortion. The government can't get involved and say, you have to do this or you have to do that. It's, you have a right because it's before a certain line. In the second trimester, states have the ability to do health regulations around it, but they can't ban it. Mm -hmm. In the third trimester states are allowed to ban it if they so choose to ban it. So it's actually, in terms of, it's phenomenally nuanced is my point. Yeah. That they sort of parse it out and, and separate it and say, here's what's allowed in this line. Here's, and then they changed it later on in 1992, but with, what was it, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, I think yes. the name of the cases, to the viability standard. Yes. And I think an important point that you're making there is that Roe doesn't actually have anything to do with late-term abortions because states already had the ability to ban late-term abortions mm -hmm. if they wanted to. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, listen, the, the way that the right plays this is they use the most extreme example And pretend like it's every abortion. Pretend is like, like it's every abortion. Yeah. Use that to, you know, to sort of typify the movement. On the other hand, look, it's totally fair to say something, you know, if you believe something is morally wrong, it's morally wrong, whether it's 50% of abortions or it's 1% of abortions. Yeah, so but, but I think that is really, really unnuanced for people to think that way because... First of all, the polls in the country are 58% think abortion should be legal in certain circumstances. Yeah, but I'm talking about just with regards to late-term abortions. So you're making the case, look, I'm, I'm pro-choice, guys, so just to be clear, but you're making the case that, listen, late-term abortions only happen in this tiny percentage, so why are we even talking about it? But, you um, know, well, I'm not if, saying why are, why... if something is morally wrong, it's morally wrong whether it's happening to one person or whether it's happening to 100 people or happening to 1,000 people. Yeah, but, they, but the point that I'm trying to make is... They're just not honest about that. Correct. They try to pretend like all of the abortions are late-term abortions, when in reality, there's literally an abortion pill. It's not, it's not the morning-after pill. This is different than the morning-after yes. pill. But there's an abortion pill, which you take relatively early. And again, 
89% happened before 13 weeks, 98% happened before 21 weeks. So really, in most circumstances, what we're talking about here is gametes and zygotes and pregestation fetuses and no nervous system developed yet, so no ability to feel pain. And to Joe's point, I actually think he's making a nuanced point that few people in this conversation make, which is, can we just acknowledge that these are different things, mm -hmm. that it's different at two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks or 13 weeks versus, you know, eight months. Right. Like, that's a very, very different thing. And I don't think, particularly the pro-life people, they do not do... In fact, you'll hear them cite this. 60 million babies have been killed since whatever year. And it's like, that's... You're just, like, strawmanning what's right. actually going on here. And again, when you're talking about Roe, you're only talking about those very early term instances because Correct. already states can, you know, affect. I mean, it's really been kind of the wild, wild west. In a lot of states, it already is effectively illegal and impossible to get an abortion. But, you know, you're able to do impose all kinds of regulations, restrictions and outright bans after the point of viability. So what we're really talking about with Roe is before the point of viability and these very um, extreme draconian laws like, and this is where it becomes relevant that Joe is in Texas now because they just passed this uh, six week ban and it has all these- Do they have a trigger law too? Um, I don't know if they have a they trigger might. law. They might, I read but, one article said 13 states have it. Another one I read said 16 states have a trigger law. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that just means that the second that Roe versus Wade is officially overturned at the Supreme Court immediately, abortion is fully illegal in a state. And even, I talked about this before, Louisiana, Crystal, is, uh, they have a bill that they're gonna vote on where it would punish the woman as if she committed murder if she gets an abortion. Well, Texas and then also a, the doctor who performs it would be charged with murder as well, charged with homicide. And so, like, now they're going super hard in the crackdown now. And actually, I, I agree with Joe. I think his position, he's taking the moderate position, which is the Rover. See, that's what nobody says. The Roe yeah. versus Wade position is actually the moderate position. Correct. Yeah. And I agree with Rogan's commentary on it, and I've always considered myself a moderate on the issue of abortion, you know? And so, I, you know, I think... And this is also very different from, you know, he's right-wing on everything. I'm like, no, he's not. Right. No, he's not. Well, that, what are you talking about? He's clearly other... pro Roe versus Wade. That's obvious based that's on That's the other that. piece. So I looked it up. Texas has a so-called trigger ban signed into law in June 2021 would make abortions illegal unless the pregnant person's life is threatened or they are at risk of serious injury. Um, that law would go into effect th 30 days after the Supreme Court issues a judgment overruling Roe. And so that means in Texas, um, they have a, an exception for life and health of the mother, but not for the, right. some of the instances he was talking about, which is rape or incest. And, you know, I, I do think it's instructive. Both, obviously, it goes against the notion that Joe is just, like, this consistently right-wing dude. Um, and I'll be interested to see some of the reaction in the online sphere to his comments here. There uh, will be none. Which are very Because they only highlight when he says right-wing things. Yes. There will be correct. no reaction. We're going to be the only people who talk about it. Well, and Because we're the only people talk about when he says some right-wing stuff. See, and, and if when it he was, says some left-wing stuff. We talk about both, and most people just talk about the right-wing stuff. And if it was, if the right acted the way the left does, they would clip Attack out these comments and be like, look at this yeah. left-wing Joe and Rogan hating babies and, and whatever. But no, they'll just not talk about this. And then they ultimately also will highlight the things in which he agrees with them, which is why this whole thing is ultimately so silly. Now, again, what did we do when Joe Rogan made a commentary against paid leave 
What did we do? We came out here and disagreed with them and said, here's why we disagree with them. Here are the, here are the graphs. Here's the charts. Here's where this is already the law. Here's where it's not. We're kind of getting screwed in this country. He should support this. And by the way, he, he actually changed his mind on that after we did that. Yeah. So we talk about when he says right-wing stuff, and we talk about it when he says left-wing stuff because it's interesting, newsworthy, and we're honest. And we're, I'm not, like, here's what Joe Rogan is. He views himself as apolitical. Now, he's not apolitical. Nobody's apolitical. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there's differing degrees of it, but he's not apolitical. He views himself that way. But really, he's effectively a normie, and he's sort of a centrist because he's got some right-wing views and he's got some left-wing views. Now, most of his actual policy views are left-wing views, but in terms of, like, his focus and what he likes to talk about the most, most of those things do lean right because it's always, like, wokeness bad, cancel culture bad, yada, yada. So he's a mixed bag, and you got to take a mixed bag for what they are and be honest about where they are. Yeah. As opposed to just you know, bloviating about what the personal things that you find offensive about him and, and none of the positive stuff, you know? I also think his comments are reflective of where a lot of people are on abortion. 58%? Yeah. Agree with exactly that? Uh, agree with, you know, his view, which is basically like, you know, they're not, they're probably uncomfortable with late-term abortions. They feel like that is a different thing than early in the pregnancy. I mean, this is sort of like the, you know a way that a lot of Americans view the issue, which is not totally hardline one way or the other. So I think he's reflective in that way because it also shows that on this issue, and this is why Republicans actually don't want to talk about the decision, and right. the, the, they, they just want to talk about the leak yeah. because they know that they are wildly out of step with right. where the majority of Americans are. Um, because again, Roe is not about late-term abortions, however you feel about that. It is about these very extreme laws that have been passed in um, basically half the states at this point. And also, to your point, uh, you mentioned this earlier, the logic that's used in this case, there's a line in there that people have, you know, sort of focused on, which was Alito saying, these are not rights that are deep-rooted in history. Mm -hmm. And by that logic, gay marriage, gone. Mm -hmm. That's not deep-rooted. It's very recent. Yeah. You could even argue interracial marriage, gone. I don't know if they'll go that far. Right. But certainly I think gay marriage is on the chopping block. Uh, you know, you can bring back sodomy laws. Say, hey, let the states decide. You, you know, you don't have a right to do certain sex acts. That's not what the... And, and the, the argument always comes back to, well, that's not what the founders intended. Right. Okay, but then there's a larger conversation to be had about how do you interpret the Constitution? Are, are you still, in today's day and age, saying just what the founders wanted? That's all. That's the only thing we could think. Well, there's a lot of issues that exist now that literally didn't exist then because they never thought of it. We're talking about guys who wore powdered wigs and shat in outhouses. The idea that they have all the answers to the modern problems. So really, uh, the way that I like to interpret it is look at the language and then uh, a reasonable interpretation of the language giving, given the modern context. So, you know, like... I think people have a right to euthanasia, to physician-assisted suicide. You know, I think you can interpret that in the Constitution. I think that the general welfare clause of the Constitution basically allows for the government to provide for the general welfare of the people. I think you can make an argument that we should have universal health care because of the general welfare clause. You know, that you have a right to health care, like the French Constitution has a right to health care. You know, so I don't like when in this debate you have, like, the conservatives like, like to say... You know, originalism or textualism, you just go by the letter of the law. And any other interpretation except the one I have is illegitimate. Like, yeah. you're being political, I'm being constitutional. Right. No, it's a different interpretation of the Constitution. We're both being political, because everything's political, but we're also both interpreting the Constitution just yeah. in a different way. I mean, I also ultimately think that 
a lot of these decisions, they just come down to whatever these people's politics are. Always. And then they make up the legal rationale to fit with whatever that is. And because everybody does even it. In their, even in their, like, originalism or whatever, you know, there was an instance, I think it was Ian Milheiser who was um, pointing this out. Like, they ruled one way for one for a red state and their congressional gerrymander, but then they ruled against. Like, for this, it should have gone the same way, but for a blue state and a congressional gerrymander that would, that would benefit Democrats, that one they struck down, and it was, like, completely inconsistent. So I think you should just, I don't even think that looking or reading into their arguments is that interesting at this point. They're just doing what they want to do based on their political leanings and ideologies. Let me just give one more point to bolster your argument here, because I remember this with Antonin Scalia very well. So there was a case involving um, the border, I think it was in Arizona, where they wanted the right to build their own border wall. Now, the border is a federal border, so that's mm -hmm. really the purview of the federal government. Arizona wanted to build their own border wall, and uh, Scalia ruled, look, they have a right to do it, you know, states' rights. If they want to build it, they can build it. Who is the federal government to go in there and tell them how to run their state? On the issue of weed, when California mm -hmm. legalized weed through the state level, mm -hmm. he goes, no, supremacy clause, federal government overrides yeah, state government, course. you can't legalize that. Right, of course. So wait, 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 wait. In one instance, you're going states' rights, states' rights, states' rights. In the other instance, you're going supremacy clause, federal law is above state law, so federal law is supreme. Which is it? And the answer is, it all went back to his own political biases. Yes. And he just dresses it up in legalese. There was one other thing um, that, again, Ian Milheiser was arguing that I hadn't thought of in this context, but I think is fundamentally correct, which is just by nature, the Supreme Court, not to say they've never done anything good. Of course, all we know some of the landmark decisions, some of them have happened in recent years, like Obergefell. But... Um, by its nature, the Supreme Court is more likely to be sort of have a conservative reactionary bias because if you're a conservative um, and you're comfortable with like the status quo and the powers that be, it's the Supreme Court's whole thing is to strike things down. So if you're someone like us who believes in positive freedom and building up new programs like anti-poverty programs or whatever, like the Supreme Court can't do any of that for you. But it can strike down, you know, if that program gets passed, it can strike it down, as in the case of Obamacare that they gutted, or, you know, as in the case of this obviously taking away of um, what has been a key right for women for a long time. So I thought that was an interesting way to think about it as yeah. well, that the conservative, the Supreme Court, it can, it can tear things down, but it can't build them up. And that naturally means that it's going to tend to be more beneficial over the long term. Yeah, conservative but program. I mean, to be fair, there are some times where striking things down makes sense. Sure. Like if they strike down George W. Bush doing torture and they go, you know what? That's unconstitutional. Eighth Amendment. You have protection from cruel and unusual punishment. Right. That is cruel but and they, unusual. Strike it down. All they can do, though, is preserve like those concepts of, of freedom that are just about like removing constraints. Right. So they can't build up institutions that would help to create positive freedom, like anti-poverty programs and those, right. you know. I mean, they could. They can strike down labor rights. They can't necessarily, like, build up, you know, enshrine new labor protections. Well, what happened during FDR's era was the court would verify the New Deal programs. And, it, you know, they'd say this under the general welfare clause is allowed. That's why I mentioned the general welfare clause mm -hmm. earlier. On that rests so many of the left-wing notions of positive freedom. And, you know, yeah, it, it's all about the interpret the language in a reasonable way. You know, the government's supposed to look out for your general welfare. Does that mean you should have health care like every other developed nation? I, I would argue yes. But the argument from the conservatives is, the founders didn't mean that, so that it doesn't count. You know, and we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I mean, the Supreme Court in 
I think it was the 1970s, briefly overturned the death penalty. Because they were like, that's unconstitutional. And then, I don't know how many years later, five years, ten years, something like that, they went back and changed it. And that's why, you know, all the, the crowing about precedent in either direction is sort of dumb. Because it's like, well, that's precedent. Okay, yeah, it was precedent for Roe v. Wade from 1973 and onward, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what about all the time in American history up till 1973? So when you were, they were doing Roe v. Wade on the first day, they could have been like, you're overthrowing precedent to not do Roe v. Wade. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just, like, throw out the conversations about precedent, throw out the conversations about you're politicizing it or, you know, whatever. Just have a conversation about the issue as such. And that's actually why I like that Rogan clip. Because he was... I thought it was nuanced commentary, number one. Number two, he clearly is in favor of Roe versus Wade. And then, of course, you have the arguments about freedom. And, yeah, up to a certain point, I, you know, you can't, you can't force a mother to be an incubator to the baby, you know? Yeah. Like, and, again, we're talking about when it's early enough, you're talking about gametes and zygotes and pregestation fetuses and no nervous system develops. So that's fundamentally a different thing than something that happens later on. And he acknowledges that. Yeah, and does it in a way that I think would be compelling to... Um conservatives like he makes the case in a way that is effective for people who generally think like live and let live yeah and that's why you know i saw the, the your audience is very ideologically diverse mm -hmm. and i saw you guys polled roe versus wade and when i saw it it was like 51 percent or 52 percent support roe versus wade and that was the biggest category yeah you know so it's one of these issues where and the other polling backs this up too what is it um 70 didn't want it to be overturned in one poll yeah, it was us. It was like 70-30 in one poll. Abortion polling is very sensitive to the way that you ask the question. Very but true. when you ask about Roe specifically, because to your point, overturning Roe is really quite an extremist position because then you're talking about opening the door to these fetal heartbeat laws and, you know, outright bans and without exceptions for a rape or incest even. Um, when you poll specifically on Roe, it's, it's really pretty overwhelming. I think with the Breaking Points audience, the last I checked, it was like a majority in favor of Roe. It was like 30% who, it was only like 30% who wanted it overturned and it was like 20% that wasn't sure. So it was, the breakdown was something like that. And, you know, so I, I really appreciate having an ideologically diverse audience and try to think about in when I'm crafting arguments for things that I care about, like Roe is not central to my politics, but I am pro-choice and I do care about it. Um, I do try to think about how to relate to people who may not be 100% on board with me and try to win them over. And I think that's something that Rogan does actually very effectively and very naturally. Yeah. Yeah, and this is one of those issues where, you know, polling does show most of his audience is right-wing, but it's only like 50-some-odd percent, mm -hmm. um, and that'll change minds. I yeah. think that'll change minds. You're and so it should be that. cheered on as opposed to finger-wagging, mm -hmm. you're a bad guy. <laughs> anyway, let, let's uh, let's bring in Ari. Yeah, let's get to Ari Ravenhoff, uh, author of a new book, The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. Here he is. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, you have a great book out now called The Fighting Soul about how you were on the road with Bernie Sanders and part of his campaign. Um, I have like a million questions that uh, I want to ask you, but let's start really broad first. So Bernie is viewed by many people, people who hate him and who love him, as like he's this ornery old man who is very to the point, very direct. Um, I curmudgeonly. Happen, curmudgeonly, that's a great word. I happen to Crusty, think it's... <laughs> people have said. <laughs> now I'm getting offended, don't say that. No, uh, no but, so I want to ask you, knowing him behind the scenes as well as you do, um, do you think that that's an 
accurate portrayal? Is he different behind the scenes? Um, just give me your impression of him from a personal perspective before we get into anything policy-wise and campaign-wise. Yeah, it, look, in some ways, yes, it is him. When he told the New York Times he doesn't call you on your birthday, guarantee you he's not calling you he, on your he birthday. He does not call you on your birthday, does not call you on. <laughs> does not call you on your birthday. But, like, when he's with his grandchildren, like, 100% different person. Mm. He's a guy whose, like, backyard is strewn with, like, athletic equipment hmm. because he's picking it up. Like, if the grandkids are there, they're kicking around the soccer ball, they're playing basketball. That And there's sometimes glimpses of that you see on, like, some social media posts, but that's kind of the personal Bernie, the personal life Bernie, is this warm grandfather, actually. Uh, the political Bernie is somebody who, like, very focused on issues, very focused. Everything else is just gossip. And I think that's where he gets kind of the crusty nature because he believes <laughs> he believes what he's engaged in like at a very real level believes he is engaged in like this long 40-year war that has encompassed his career mm. and when he's in that zone he's kind of in that zone outside that zone like you know there are moments like where uh we where we took bernie to uh, spring training at dodger spring training mm. Mm. And he's like, he was like a kid there, like watching the kids throw, like watching baseball. He loves baseball. baseball oh, loves he? baseball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Watching the, like just sitting watching pitchers throw 90 mile an hour, 100 mile an hour fastballs. He was just like sitting in awe. Now, mind you, he did, um, he did both wear a Brooklyn Dodger hat and when the LA, the team people from LA came out with some LA hats, he was like, no, I'll keep it. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to stay. Does he's he, going to stay loyal to Brooklyn. Does he keep his circle really tight? Because I get yes. the sense he's that kind of a person where, like, if you're in, you're in. If you're even, if there's even a question, you're you're out. You it's, know? it's not even like that. It's he keeps a small circle. He keeps very close confidence. He and it's one of those things where if you're in the circle and you're working for him, you're in. And if you've kind of moved on. You moved on, and it's not even a—it's not a personal thing. It's—he's mm. working. He's working hard. He wants people around him who are, like, working at his pace, which, as somebody who worked from, is actually excruciating. Mm. Oh, I believe that. Um, I saw a little bit of that side of Bernie that you're talking about when I happened to be there in Iowa when he came in for J.D. Shulton, who J.D. was running against Steve King, came very close, actually, to beating that guy, which was a, a darn shame, and Democratic Party didn't come into it for him till the last minute. That's a whole other story. But um, J.D. is a former professional minor league baseball player yes. and mm. an all-around incredible athlete, and Bernie wanted to play some, like, pickup bas basketball against him. Though the, it was... So the campaign... As I remember it, the campaign wanted to film like a video of them playing horse mm. together. Yes. And so it was him, the Secretary of State candidate, and JD playing That's horse. That's right, yeah. And yeah, because she was also like an, had an athletic background, yeah, played in college or something like that. Yeah. So, but they, there are two people who are, by the way, less than half his age <laughs> out there, right. much less than half his age. And look, he's not doing bad, but he does lose the game of horse to a former professional athlete. And he gets in the car and is like expressing disappointment <laughs> in his basketball. And I'm just like, it's a professional athlete who is, by the way, half your age. He's like, oh, I've done better. I've hit shots. He was a. Uh, it was funny. He was, you know, and it. He'll he'll focus on that sometimes. When we, um, after the heart attack, I think we did an episode of a Jimmy Fallon, mm. and they pulled out a basketball net, and he was just like, I'm gonna hit all these, and he was just hitting every bucket wow. in there with, and it was like during rehearsal. Jimmy's like, uh, he can't really shoot, it seems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Bernie's just sinking every shot. <laughs> wow. Quite pleased with himself. Well, 
Was that like, that had to be unprecedented, right? Where you have a, a candidate who has a heart attack on the campaign trail and then like has a giant bump in the polls. He had a you know, spike. What, I mean, it was such a crazy moment, both in the campaign and in my life, right? I'm in a car and it's with Bernie and one other staffer and the other staffer was his body man, Jesse, who had started in that job at 5 p.m. that day. Mm. So, wow. I had worked for Bernie for a while, but had never really been around hmm. Bernie at that intimate level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not like there's a major, it's not like you on TV where somebody like grabs their chest or there's like major signs, it's like a series of like small symptoms that Little says thing. something is wrong, something is wrong. Okay, something is very wrong. We have to, you know, I describe this in the book in detail. We go to an urgent care. We go to the hospital in the while we're in the waiting room. Me, Jesse, the staffer, Charla Bailey, who was with us as well. I turned to them and I was like, "Okay, like he's in the procedure, getting the stent put in." I was like, "Look, the campaign's over, right? Mm. There's no. We work for a 78-year-old who just had a heart attack. Like, I don't know how we're. I don't know what how we win this, but by the like, but it was like a pep talk. Like, we got to keep. Like, you cannot keep put that in your mind. You have to just like." run through the bag here. Like, we keep going until Bernie says stop. Like, don't, don't stop. And kind of, we walked into his room at like one in the morning after the procedure and he was like making jokes and we we're like, and, and what was amazing to me was like, the color had completely returned to his face mm. in a way you didn't even realize. Like, and he's all right, and the next day, like, I didn't sleep. I went, went home, went back to the hotel, showered, came back to the hospital. The doctor came in to see him at six. I went in right after. And like no tubes, no anything. He's just like sitting there with like the the pulse ox on his finger, but nothing, mm -hmm. nothing else. And I was just like, okay, like this is strange. Like you just had a heart attack, and you're like, look totally normal in like you don't look like you've had this. And he was like, you know, Jane came in a few hours later. She had to fly commercially through Chicago. Uh, Fashikir, the campaign manager, came in, and we were kind of in the room. And he was like, look, I'm gonna keep going because I don't think anybody else is gonna represent my issues in this race. And the voters will know I had a heart attack and the voters will decide will decide and that's that's okay and then at that moment though we were uh, according to the Des Moines Register poll in fourth in Iowa in public polling that was like the one week in the polling average where like there was like two days where Elizabeth Warren crossed yeah, I remember that. Joe mm. Biden it was like that week so we're at like the low point of the campaign um, and you know uh, AOC calls the hospital on Thursday and says, I'm endorsing. Mm. And like, from then it was just like, that kind of moment was like the low. And from there Boom. it just took off over the next few weeks. And I think a lot of that was people took that Bernie was a part of the political process for granted in a lot of ways. Mm. And there were some questions among certain people. But once the heart attack happened, I think a lot of people felt, oh, we could lose this. Mm. What, what did he say when he was having the heart attack? Was he just like, I have chest pain? What no, was it? Was, it? So, or did you see it and he didn't even say anything? So there were a few things. So first, we were at this, like, what we called a grassroots fundraiser. It was like a $25, $30 fundraiser type thing. Um, and... Uh, Pete Buttigieg did a lot of those. Too, yes, right? Just like. <laughs> in, the wine, 30, in the wine cave. <laughs> uh, yes, the bottles of wine were not twenty-five dollars. Um, <laughs> they weren't drinking two buck chuck at his fundraisers. <laughs> um, uh, he was on stage, and this is on video, by the way. This part, 
and he asks, he, 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 he says, Ari, can you get me a chair? Which first, that's like, first to me, that's like something is wrong because he has never asked for a chair. In fact, he hates sitting down for when he's on stage at an event. You'll see, like, he'll be in a chair. It was kind of awkward at some forum. So, like, sit in a chair and he'll be sitting and the interviewer will ask him a question and he'll get up and address the audience. Like, yeah. he hates chairs in that format. So first, he asked for a chair. Second, he like cut off the Q&A in like two minutes. Mm. Third, he doesn't do pictures, which at these fundraisers, like he wasn't Elizabeth Warren with the selfie lines. We did them a bunch. We didn't do like the 10,000 person event selfie lines. That We thought that was a bit over the top, to be mm -hmm. honest. But at an event like that, he would normally do uh, the selfie line, right? No, we headed out. We get in the car. Um, he was like, I was like, do you want dinner? And he was like, no, another sign. Like him passing up dinner after traveling from the East Coast that day, I was like, that's wrong. He got on the phone with Jane, said he was tired and not feeling too well. He was going to go back to his hotel. Um, I was like, is there something wrong? Like what's, what's going on? And that's when he said like, my chest is feeling tight. Mm. And You immediately thought. Well, no. Oh, really? I, I was kind of like, okay, there can be lots of reasons for I would have went right to heart attack. I, would you have? At this point, having elderly parents and thinking yeah, about Yeah, chest pain is like, he did, he take said, you to the hospital. He, he, was, he was very much, he was like, not pain. He was like, it's tight. It's not pain. He was mm. like, very specific. Mm. And um, so, but it's enough that I'm like, I got to keep quizzing this. And right. I was like, what else is wrong? And he's like giving me like a little Bernie, like, come on, come on. And he was like, Look, I'd like to get a doctor to at least come to the hospital, to, to, the, to at least come to your hotel room, to just give you a once over if you can, like if you're sick, get you some medicine. And he's like, you can get a doctor to come to a hospital? Yes, that is, that is a possibility. You're running for president. <laughs> I can find a doctor who will come to your hospital room and take- To your hotel room, Also, yeah. it's Las Vegas. You can pretty much find anything you want. You're right, to yeah. Yeah, um, true. So, and then I was like, is there any other symptoms? He's like, well, no, no. I was like, what, like, what's, what else? He's like, well, you know, for the last few days, my left arm has been hurting. And I was, oh, that's when I was like, yeah. boom. Oh. That's when it was pull the car out of the motorcade, go to the, we went to this first urgent care. They said they couldn't treat him. Really? They couldn't. They, they were oh, too, they didn't have heart attacks? No, though? they were too crowded. Because I didn't say heart attack because I didn't know it was a heart attack. Okay, I just knew. Right. Look, it was, I wanted yeah, to Yeah, but anyone, I mean, sorry, but I, I just had a totally false alarm, minor scare with my mom. Anyone who bring, brings in an elderly patient with those kind of with symptoms. With chest tightening. Yeah, they were like, they like, immediately immediate, go, like stroke heart care, yeah, they were potential heart attack. They were yeah. like, find, they were like, go to another urgent care. I was like, okay. Actually went to, remember this urgent care called Elite Medical, which is the strangest name for urgent care that Bernie would go to. It's right. Like <laughs> down on the strip behind the MGM Grand, and it's like, where you would go if you had a little too much fun at the club that night. Yeah, yeah right. Like yeah. it's that, but they have a full surgical facility in there. And so brought him down there, they saw him, they were like, we gotta transport to hospital, so we gotta do this. if that doesn't happen, if you don't, cause Bernie's clearly trying to kind of brush you off, let me just go back to my hotel room, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, if you don't quiz him, if you don't say, if you don't get the piece of information about the arm hurting and you don't take him to the urgent care, like what do you think happened? I, I, I know, I, I know the answer. I, I mean, <laughs> Like, it's a moment where I don't want to, like, pat myself on the back for that. No, I do. I, I, I want to pat you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, Jesse was there. He was playing a role in this. Uh, Charla Bailey was playing a real role, making sure this whole thing ran actually very smoothly that night. Um, 
But it scares me to think, because he would have gone back to, look, what would have happened, I say this in the book, he would have gone back to his room, and, and it's kind of a nightmare for me, because I would have been like, oh, early night in, like, it could have been, oh, early night in Las Vegas, I'm going to go play some poker, mm. maybe I'll go get mm. a nice dinner, like, and like, when Bernie was in his room for the night, he didn't want to be checked on till the morning, like, don't right. disturb him till the morning, so I would have never checked on him, right, and, because once he was in his room, he didn't want to be disturbed, he was like, once he was down for the night, he wanted to rest, right? And he typically ran, we typically ran late as a, as a thing. So once he was down, he was like, unless the world is ending, like, don't bother. Like, right. this is his time, which he frankly needed on the campaign trail, because yeah. anybody would. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's one of those things where he, he, there's no way that campaign would have continued. I don't know what would have happened, but that campaign wouldn't have, like, he would not wow. have been in, because they said, the one thing the doctor did tell me was because we had acted, there's like a 90 minute window that mm. the doctor described to me where you have, if you can do, if you can get get the stent in in like 90 minutes, you're, pre, you're pretty good. If you go over the 90 minute line, that's where you start to have serious moments. And we were well under 90 minutes because we were in the hospital, in the ambulance on the way. And by the way, in the ambulance, having a conversation in the back seat with the ambulance driver or the EMT about Healthcare. healthcare. Oh, I'm sure. That's classic Bernie. Yeah. He would do it to his surgeon about to cut him open. Yeah. Well, with the so, surgeon, uh, how are your benefits? With the surgeon about to cut him open, that was, he came into the hospital. That was, so first, before he left, he, they asked, take, please take his ring, take his glasses. And he gave the ring, the wedding ring, but he was like to the glasses, no, 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 that's bullshit. <laughs> he wants to be able to see. Then, I understand. Then we're in the, we pull into the, we pull into the, to the hospital, and there's like a hall, like they're, they're going in, right? And they're getting him ready for surgery, and the doctor's like doing the like pre like, are you allergic to da da da? And he's like, oh, are you just answering these questions? I'm like, I don't know if you're allergic to eggs. <laughs> he's like, are you allergic to eggs? No. It's like, on a scale of one to ten, how much pain? He's like, that is a bullshit question. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel like this is gonna be you at 78? That's, that's exactly like no, you. No, 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 don't, no, because I'm the opposite. I would be just as definitive, but I would be like definitely seven. I would yeah. give like a hard answer. He's like, no, I, I reject the framing. True, that's fair, that is fair. Um, yeah. You know, Ari, one of the things that strikes me, like obviously even in this conversation, it's very clear that all three of us have a great deal of affection for yeah. the senator, you have had, you know, hours and hours and hours of close conversation with him. And there are millions of people across the country who love this man. And if you look at the polling, even, even after all the years of, like, demonization, not just from the right, but also coming from the Democratic establishment, still he is one of the most beloved politicians. Still his endorsement is one of the most critical endorsements that a candidate can um, possibly get. Like... How do you square? It's so strange to me that there are so many people who have such great affection and admiration for this man, and then there's this like small club of people, especially in the Democratic Party, who just seem to completely despise him. Look, because well, there are two. There are two reasons. One, I think Bernie is authentically Bernie, and he has a to his sometimes to his detriment has a complete inability to like do bullshit, right? And I think. People know, I was being interviewed, somehow I ended up on like with like a right-wing host in Texas yesterday. Mm. My, my publisher like put me with that. I don't know why. It was a fine interview. And the, it started out like, I don't agree with Bernie on anything, but let me tell you, I, I respect that I know he always is telling me, even though I disagree with him, I know he's not. He's not a bullshitter. He's not a bullshitter. I know he's telling yeah. me, mm. I know he's telling me the truth. And I think there's that where it's like, I might disagree with him, but at least I know he's not a normal politician. He's just going to tell me 
really what he thinks. He's not giving he's not me a political games. answer. He's not playing games. Yeah. And he takes this seriously. I think, two, um, he legitimately listens to people. And I think people who have interacted with him are sometimes get surprised by that, that it's not just like a, like, blow-off listen. Like, he kind of takes, uh, you know, he takes real people seriously and their story seriously. Like, there was this one, we were in Arizona, same trip where we went to Dodgers uh, training camp. We were, check, we were, like, late at night checking into the hotel, and we're being brought up the elevator by, like, a hotel manager, like a young woman hotel manager there, and she's, like, he, he starts asking her about voting in Arizona, and she, like, so we're now there for, like, 20 minutes in the elevator where, frankly, I'm like, I just want to go to my room. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And he's engaged in a conversation about voting rights because she had, like, a six-hour or eight-hour wait to vote, mm -hmm. and he was, like, talk. And it's, like, she said that, and, like, he's off and running. She's telling the story. He's like, where do you vote? What precinct? Like, it's legit, and I don't think, you know, you take someone like that, I don't think she's ever had someone like Bernie care. listen to her right. or care or legitimately... Wait, you said in line that long? We have to talk about this. Where was it? What happened? Did you vote? The, right? Wow. It was like, le that's legit. You know, they're hotel maids, like, telling their stories. It like, if he interacts with a real person and he's not, you know, sometimes it's difficult because he's just moving someplace. But if it's in that moment, he really does listen. I think that makes a huge difference. I all Look, and then there's the truth about why people hate him, right? And they're the people who survive in politics based on bullshit based on lies, based on so kind true. of bad faith arguments. And Bernie exists to destroy that, right? So if your whole career is based on bad faith crap. And ladder climbing, and kissing ass. And and you say, you know, and your, your, your career is based on that, and your political life is based on that, how are you going to feel about Bernie who hasn't done any of that? And, you know, the problem with D.C. is... As, as a D.C. person who has been around the city way too long in my life, I, I kind of realized... Bernie made me realize what disturbed me about D.C. Mm. And I never could put a finger on it until Bernie, and then I figured it out with Bernie. It's pretty much to the T, like, 70% of people in D.C., 80%, 80 and maybe I'm being generous with these numbers, have lived their whole lives to, like, climb the D.C. ladder. Like, they were, like, president of the Young Democrats right. Club. Mm -hmm did all the right things, went to the right colleges, you know, never smoked a joint, like, just lived a life to, like, climb this ladder. 99% of people who run for president live their lives, their entire life to run for president. Bernie didn't live his life to run for president until he actually ran for president. Like, he has never kind of been part of that system. And he's not, and he's not going to be and the thing is, he doesn't want to be. Like, he doesn't care to, and I think that's what disturbs people. Well, I think it's that they have all kinds of self-rationalizations about how you have to play the game this way, you have to be sort of the bullshit artist. It's like, just you the way have, it works. It's just, that's yeah. the way well, it works, and if you're a serious person and you want to get things done for the greater good, you've got to play the game in this way. And then here's Bernie Sanders, who never did any of that shit, showing you that actually your rationalizations about why you're behaving as basically like, you know, a uh, bullshitting, <laughs> hollow, shallow person, those are those are totally incorrect. Like, I, you've been lying to yourself. I, I actually would take it a step further than you went there. So I think people, let's just do like at a staff level, right? You yeah. come to D.C. and you get your first job, and those are like, you go on the Hill, like, the staff assistants are the most ideological people left and right on the Hill. Mm -hmm. Why? 
because you don't have to like carve any of yourself away to be a staff assistant. Like you're there, it's exciting. You give some tours, you supervise the interns, you do the flag requests, and you like manage the office, right? Then you get promoted and you become a legislative correspondent where it's mm -hmm. your job to write the letters to the constituents. Mm -hmm. And most of the time you're good because you're working for someone you generally agree with. But then there's the one issue where your boss is off from you and you have to write the letter about, let's say, guns, mm. where you just disagree with your boss on guns. Let's take that one. But you still, but you kind of rationalize that and it's a right rationalization where I'm doing this for the greater cause and my boss is good on these 90 things and this one thing I don't like and yeah, writing this letter saying I love guns is fine, right? And when you do that, you carve part of your soul away. Mm. And as you kind of rise on the hill, like you're literally creating like Harry Potter horcruxes of your soul mm. right? as you do that. And you're cutting that away um, from yourself because you know, you're always kind of serving a higher you're always justifying it by saying I'm serving a higher power and the higher up you get in those positions and the, the longer you stay doing that and the more you kind of are in that system, the more of yourself you have to kind of cut away. There's nothing left at the and end. And then there's nothing left. And yeah. then you're somebody like that who remembers why you came to DC, remembers that part of yourself, remembers yourself before the justifications and then you see Bernie who never made any, who never had to do any of that and you are going to be Nothing is going to piss you off more than that. To your That's point. so well said. To your it's point. Profound. I remember a time where Bernie's honesty got him in enough trouble where even I was like, maybe you shouldn't have been that honest, bro. <laughs> no, seriously, because it was on the Boston Marathon bomber yeah, voting. I remember, I remember covering that and talking about it and saying, like, if I was on Bernie's team, I'd pull him aside and be like, look, I get where you're coming from. Perhaps you're correct on the substance, but you got to sort of warm it over a little bit. Because well, wasn't I, his answer like, yeah, you should be able to vote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so I actually, like, what? speaking of pulling him aside, right. it's like one of those moments on the campaign where it's like, first off, he's fundamentally right. Um, and that's in like the worst, if I were to say like the worst, I, I address this in the book, it's like this three-week period where just a bunch of bad things happen that, bad in that they like drop our poll numbers. Right. It was... Mm -hmm. Joe Biden entering the race combined with that, which, I mean, look, the political problem there from a political end was it was the story that nobody kind of the media just completely miscovered. because There was like Bernie and Warren are in the lane for voters. We were actually much more in a lane with Joe Biden because we had yeah. this beer track, wine track kind of picture. Right. Of the right. Yeah. And that that's one of the things that voters the difference is voters being scared of. Like, Bernie's going to say or do something kind of that will chase away swing voters, and I'm going to be nervous. And that kind of was one of those markers of, like, the way the media covers it. That's one of those markers of, oh, that puts him at risk in the... It's but not, I think the polls, too, were against him on that. No, I remember absolutely. covering They were absolutely, yeah. but nobody absolutely. votes on that. Yeah, but no, what they right. vote on is the feeling of, oh, he's a risk. It was that the makes idea more of risky. everybody like putting on their little pundit hats yeah. and being like, "What's the you know swing and, voter in Michigan at the diner gonna think and, of this?" But I, I and if you remember that, it was though. it was at the New Hampshire Forum that moment, mm -hmm. and it was Chris Cuomo, and it was clearly like a setup question from like the college audience, and they're like, and the question was literally like, "Do you think the Boston Marathon bomber should be able to vote?" And I was like, "Really? Is that classic Bernie though?" He's like, "Yes." And, and when I Next question. Like, talked to him about it after, he was like, guys, like, people in jail can vote in Vermont. How can I be, like, people in jail right. vote for me for senator. Like, 
Yeah, like, his point is a right's a right, and the thing that makes it a right is that you can't and, take it away. That's the way, way it's his, supposed his to work. His other point I is not only a right's a right, but who is incarcerated in this country? If we're talking about, if we're literally talking about uh, uh, racial inequity in the voting process, who is incarcerated in this right, country? Yeah. Whose votes are you taking away? And the, he brought up the whole prison gerrymandering issue. Yes. Right. And he was like, this is... And he was like, no, this is my position. Yeah, because I, you know, for I, people who don't know, what that is is in a lot of actually, like, red areas, they'll use the prison population in the census count that gives them power in terms of Congress, but then that same population is unable to vote. And they're shipping the those prisoners right. from the That's inner city fair. to rural yeah. areas. That makes no sense. They and, can't do that. Yeah, and, swinging the, the um, political power balance. No, I mean, I actually I remember covering that, too. And my take was basically, like, I mean... It, it, this is a central theme of your book. Like, this is the double-edged sword with Bernie. That's because right. this is also what people love about him, is that he's going to say the thing that no political consultant in this town or anywhere else in the country would tell him to say that thing. And there's something that is appealing about that, even if in that moment you're like... No, but 90% of the time, though, Bernie's instincts are actually right smack dab in the middle of the American people's opinions. Right. That was a rare instance where he wasn't. Right, you know what but, I mean? were, but also was just in line with his values. Right. And he was just like, I'm not, that's a fundamental value to me. Vote, like, people forget, the thing that people forget about Bernie's democratic socialism is the democratic comes first. Yeah. Mm. That the idea of people participating in democracy, participating in your government, inf the rights of people to influence their government is the first part of the socialism and actually does kind of come first for him, that people participating in the process. So that's kind of... The idea of voters, uh, vote people not being able to vote, that's like fundamental to him at a core, even beyond like Medicare for all or other yeah, issues. Yeah, I can it's see that. Just but, I mean, also, just to play devil's advocate for a second, because this was an issue that I was sort of fascinated with. If the majority of people feel like, well, no, maybe they shouldn't be able to vote, because we take all sorts of rights away from people when you lock them up behind bars, you're by definition taking away their rights. Yes. The argument is sort of like, if a majority of people say, hey, like if you commit a murder or something, maybe that should be one of few things that makes you unable to vote and do other yeah. basic things. I don't think that's a crazy position to take. No, it's just, I think Bernie has a different one. He definitely does. He wasn't, he wasn't <laughs> yeah. gonna budge. And by the way, Vermont, there is one crime where you're not allowed to vote. If Murder? You, uh, no, voter fraud. Mm, oh, interesting. interesting. If you commit like voter fraud, you, you take away your yeah. right to vote. Oh, that's I mean, I, I support Bernie's position because I think the second- <laughs> Liberal cook? I think the second that you give politicians the power to disenfranchise people, I do think there's a real right. slippery slope there. And, and it is political. That's what we It's see. obviously political. Yeah. The whole idea of it is like, keep it real. Republicans in red states, like the governors of those states and the legislatures, they want to have fewer Democratic voters. And, well, the, and the they, assumption is the people yeah, in prison will vote Democratic. So just state, disenfranchise they them. They use the state and, to lock up overwhelmingly black and brown and right. poor mm -hmm. people. And so then, yeah, that's a constituency that the Republican Party doesn't want to vote. So that's why I, unlike Bernie, I am an absolutist on this issue. So mm. No, I mean, I understand that. Kyle <laughs> I'm an enlightened centrist, okay? Thank you very much. Um, so let me ask you this. When it comes, this is something I always uh, wondered about for Bernie's campaign. How exactly was strategy made? Was it pretty much like all him or was there input from others and he would sort of play around with the um, ideas? It depended what the thing was. There were things, you know, it could be small things that he felt very gl glued to and there were mm -hmm. things he trusted a kind of inner core circle. Mm. With and look, there was a lot of trust. Bernie, though, wants buy-in into his own campaign. He can't look; it's too big an entity for him to like 
supervise everything. I think if he could, he actually probably would want to. I think he did recognize he couldn't. Um, I do talk in the book about sometimes his micromanagement did go a bit too far, like when he got obsessively focused on the speakers at rallies, not the mm. people speaking, the physical speakers. Mm. Oh, <laughs> like the the Seems electronic. Like an audio file? No, but he started like calling because he was like, renting uh, sound equipment is a very expensive thing. People don't actually know, and he got obsessed. He's like, I'm going to open up a sound business because this is. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. It was, like that. It was, you know, it is expensive because look, it's a thing where everything breaks every two. It's like those guys have to repair their equipment every two it breaks every day. You're dragging wires and electricity outdoors it just it's a mess of stuff and it's expensive and he was like and and what he where he wanted to go he was actually correct this is he was correct about i think what he sometimes didn't realize in these contexts was his time was the only non-renewable resource on the campaign mm -hmm. you can have more staff you can always raise more money there's like you can everything else you can kind of replicate except his time so if he was spending, you know, the time he like called me in because he was mad the stickers weren't sticky enough. <laughs> um, called, this is bullshit. They're no, not sticky. He called Chuck Roach. They're called stickers, Ari. He called Chuck Roach on the phone and was like, this isn't sticky. Chuck will tell this story too. He like, I'm in the office, Chuck's on the phone. He like takes the sticker, he like puts it on the desk that he's at. He like peels off. He's like, I shouldn't be able to do that <laughs> on the phone. Get better sticky stickers, Chuck. Um, uh, but no, there was a group around him he trusted, but he does, like, he did want to um, have buy into things. Like, look, if an ad went on the air, he saw it. And he was, you know, very into that. But, like, did a tweet go out with it? The tweets went out without his approval, obviously. It mm. wasn't one of those, like, well, that's you know. interesting because whoever does his Twitter captures his voice well. Like, I feel like that. Yeah, well, Georgia always... Park, who ran the social media on the campaign, is brilliant. Like, mm. just, she does it. She. I don't know where she's working now, but she was, she just knew, she'd worked for him in the Senate office for years. She kind of just had, she knew the cadence, she, she knew it. him. She Does she, she ever compose his own tweets? Oh yeah, no, yeah. he would. Like, I'm just saying he doesn't have to approve every one. Gotcha. He would, no, he would like, there were times where like Facebook posts and tweets, especially in the Senate office. On the campaign, he's just running around and too busy. But when we were in the Senate office in a Senate environment, oh yeah, he would like compose tweets and Facebook posts. Once he critiqued one of my tweets, that was... So I. Really? So what happened was uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, their, his spokesperson, told the Daily News, like, Andrew Cuomo and Bernie Sanders are lockstep on policy. Uh, and 100, are 100% lockstep on policy. Oh and so I tweeted out, I, I, like, in, like, I'm like, that's nuts. And it was, in the, it was when uh, uh, he was in the middle of that uh, primary campaign. And I tweeted out, like, the idea that Andrew Cuomo and Bernie Sanders are lockstep on policy is 100% great A American bullshit. And, like, Andrew Cuomo apparently got, like, real pissed about this. And, like, well, he was trying to go in Bernie's lane. They did the free college thing together in New York, remember? Yeah, the BS free college thing. Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Cuomo starts, like, and his office start, like, calling people in Bernie world, like, oh yelling about me and, like, demanding I be punished or fired and, like, and, like, Bernie's on a plane while this is happening, and so I'm like, I just better go to the airport to like meet him and like nip it in the bud. Well, okay. I want to reach him before Andrew Cuomo does. <laughs> yeah, because at some point, Dad, I messed up. Some point, so like, so like he he, he shows up and like uh, he steps into the car outside of Na like gets off the plane, goes in like we're outside of like National Airport in D.C. Steps into the car. He looks like, what are you doing here? <laughs> 
uh, I was like, uh, let me tell you about this tweet I sent out that uh, might be in the Daily News tomorrow and uh, is kind of a thing right now. And like, <laughs> I tell him what, what it was, and he just starts laughing. Mm. And he's like laughing at it. He goes, why are you telling me this? So I'm like, well, Andrew Cuomo's not happy. He's like, oh, he's, he's like laughing. And then he's like, he goes, well, Ari, he's like, you represent me. We shouldn't curse in tweets. What you should have said is if Andrew Cuomo and Bernie Sanders are lockstep on policy, Andrew Cuomo would support Medicare for all. That's a better tweet. Mm. <laughs> like, there you like, go. That might be true. Constructive feedback. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Okay, so on a personal level, putting ideology aside, which candidates did Bernie in the presidential primary have the most affection for, and which ones did he find the most distasteful? Well, good question. Distasteful, I think it was clear, you know, he... You know, right now, I think, who knows what he would say right now, I think, during the campaign. His distaste for Mayor Pete at different points was not was not well disguised. <laughs> Hillary, too, right, in 2016? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I'm going 2020. No, 2016, yeah. there was only kind of one... There's only you know, one I, choice, I, I think yeah. Well, I don't Martin think O'Malley was out there, too. <laughs> no, no. Jim, Jim, smirched my Jim guy. Webb. Jim Webb, who killed a guy, and he wants everybody to know he killed a guy. And then you have Lincoln Chafee, who barely exists. Yeah, he exists. <laughs> yeah, Lincoln barely. Chafee, boy, you have a good I memory. Remember, I forgot about that. I remember what I once <laughs> when I worked in the Senate, like, Lincoln, when Lincoln Chafee was still a Republican, he, like, was in a hallway, like, crying, asking for sympathy because, like, the Republicans were being mean to him. <laughs> and, like... And like he had like Harry, I was with Harry Reid and Lincoln Chafee's like outside the chamber and like not physically crying, but you know like the red face, right. like just uh-huh. very upset, like they're being mean to me kind of thing. <laughs> and and Harry Reid turns to him and is like, "Are you going to run as a Democrat? We'll be nice to you." He goes, "No, I can't. I'm a Republican." <laughs> Harry Reid's like. Okay. Then, then they're going to be mean to you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. Didn't he, he was the one who said uh, he voted for either like NAFTA or the repeal of Glass Steagall or something. And then when he was asked about it in a debate, he was like, "Uh, it was my first vote." Yeah, I and, didn't know uh, what I was my doing. dad died. I don't any of and those. I don't. You don't remember this? No. He yeah, said like his dad died, and he's like, so I had to vote for deregulation. Oh my God. <laughs> it was one of the things. I, I was like, what? I was like, yeah, it was, but but who like who did he like? Like, look. I wait, think, wait. Are there others on the distaste list though? I don't know. He doesn't like. I, I think he has like, he he does find ways of having like sympathy with what all these mm. people went through. Like, look, I think. And what do you think it was about I, Pete that was like just rubbed him the wrong way? I, I would say the kind of the general phoniness kind of rubbed it, and the billionaire donor thing, and the like, the idea I think that like, you know, Pete wrote like the his profiles encourage essay award about how Bernie Sanders was like his hero in politics. And now look at him. And now look at him. I just think maybe that was too much. And it's not even like a dislike of him. It's just like a distaste. He would say he doesn't know Pete. And I think at the time he didn't know Pete. He just, he clearly didn't like the way his campaign was being conducted. Mm -hmm. Whereas others, like, look, he clearly, the affection for Joe Biden thing is real. That exists. We'll get to that. We'll talk a little bit about that. We should talk about Mm -hmm. that. Um, But look, he, I think, like, I think he has a ton of respect I think their politics are different, and he disagrees with her politics, but a ton of respect for Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, he likes I, her a lot. I, I, and he would and say, she likes him. She likes him. They came into the Senate together. They've, uh, they've always been friendly, and he also just respects her hard work. Like, he thinks she works really hard, and she's generally a good senator. Let like, me pause you on Amy. As a staffer, you hear all the scuttlebutt in the Senate. Do yeah, you, throwing like, staplers was, and whatnot. Yeah, was she as harsh with her staff as what was reported? Yeah, throwing stuff, the whole comb salad situation and all that. Do you buy that or is it fake news? I would say that there was somebody I knew 
who worked for Amy who left the office very quickly mm. and yeah. was not and and was somebody True. who's worked in DC for a long time and that office they did not survive in wow would be the I don't think none of like the things in the story were there, but they were like, I can't work for this. Person. Anytime wow. you see, I, and I remember she had some of the highest turnover of any of the senators, and that's yeah. a telltale sign. Yeah. And so I would say, I would say he respected Amy a ton in that, like, there was this moment I talk about in the book, which was like, it ended really funny, where we were flying to Minnesota to campaign for Keith Ellison, and then we were going to like, we we're doing two campaign stops for Keith Ellison, then we were going to drive down through. Wisconsin and uh, with Randy Bryce and uh, some Tammy Baldwin events and, and like end up in Chicago. And uh, so we had to fly to Minnesota and we were on the flight with Amy and she like switches seats to like sit next to Bernie to talk to him the whole flight, which I'm sure he <laughs> loved that. Um, <laughs> so we get to Minnesota and our the person who was supposed to pick us up, who was a Wisconsin person who we knew was flying to Minnesota, but there was like these huge rainstorms and they like shuffled the, his flight had to land at like another airport mm. so he couldn't pick up the car so amy heard this she's like well it's not minnesota nice if i don't drive you to a hotel and so she like insists she has to drive us and bird's like no we'll take a cab she's like no, no no i have to drive you and we had like our videographer armand was with us at the time and uh so we had like we had a bunch of check bags because we had a ton of video equipment in the check bags thing so like well we he's like no no i'm gonna wait for you to get your check bags and she's like walking around so she takes, like, Bernie by the arm and is walking her through the Minnesota airport. And, like, Bernie and I had talked about this later. It was, like, one of the most impressive displays of raw politics I've ever seen. I think she knew every single person in the Minneapolis airport that night. Because she was walking around with Bernie being like, oh, this is Bob. He owns, like, the discount tire store on Route 3. This is Dada. Like, she knew half that airport. And, like, by first name and was just, this is my friend Bernie. Hey, hey, uh, da, da, da. Come That's be incredible. my friend Bernie. Like, wow. walking him around, arm around him, like, introducing him. So then we get the we get the stuff out of the check bags and um, we her car pulls around and it's like a tiny like little sedan uh. with five seats and somehow we get all the bags in the trunk of this it's like tetrising the bags <laughs> but there are six of us because there's her staffer who's driving there's Amy Klobuchar there's Bernie there's me there's Armand and there's uh, our 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 communications director. And we're all, and we're like, okay, there's not enough seats. We'll go. No, I have to take everybody in the car. And Bernie, you sit in the front. And he's like, no, no, I don't, you sit in the front. So he goes and sits in the front. We're like, I don't know. And she goes, okay, you guys get in. And she just plops down on our communications director's lap. She sits on his lap? Oh, no, sorry. He oh, sat on he her. He sits on he her lap. Her. She's like, <laughs> me too and people over Amy here. Amy <laughs> me too, dear. And your dude. And then gives us a tour. Oh, my God. The way, and I've never seen someone's face so uncomfortable. It's <laughs> like the, the longest ride of his life. Like, sitting on her lap on the way to the hotel. Imagine me sitting on Amy Klobuchar's lap. <laughs> In a car, oh like god. in a tiny. By the way, we're all like this in the back seat. <laughs> oh my god! Crashed over, and so like, look. I think there was like general affection for a number of these people and the unique thing they were going through. At the same time, I think. And look, I think earlier in the campaign, and I can't speak to their relationship now. There obviously was 
a relationship and affection with Elizabeth Warren. Mm. Obviously, <laughs> <Not> there <anymore. laughs> was, obviously there was a moment later in the campaign which we can talk about. Which well, let's let's actually basically talk about called that. him a sexist. Yeah, and and I do want to talk about that because I think it's important for people to know that that wasn't just sort of like personally hurtful to Bernie, but your polling showed it really hurt the campaign. Yes, and look, as I've said, it you know it was probably for me almost. I think for a lot of us, just the worst moment of the campaign in general. Um, just, uh, just you know, we heard about it coming that morning. Faz went out on CNN, was like, this is a lie. And the reason I think Faz felt so comfortable in saying this is a lie is, look, I had been at probably, I've eaten meals with Bernie probably a thousand times. I've heard his opinion on everything under the sun. I've heard his thoughts on Elizabeth Warren. I've heard his thoughts on... Donald Trump. I've heard his thoughts on her chances. And it was so the opposite of everything I had ever heard from him that I just couldn't, it, it didn't, it didn't compute to mm -hmm. me that, that he would ever say that because he just had never said anything like that. In fact, when other staffers early in the cycle had, like she had gone through, I, I talk about this in the book, like, you know, after the Native American ad kerfluffle fiasco that she had, her launch was not successful, right? No. It was really bad. And a bunch of us were kind of counting her out of the race. And Bernie was not. And he was like, guys, like, she's really smart. She's really strategic. Like, and she could win. Like, do not. And she could, she could win this election. Don't, like, don't count her out. Like, she's too smart. So to go from that comment, which, by the way, those comments were made at about the same time like weeks after this lasagna dinner that mm. uh, it just didn't compute to me that you would go from that. The, it just it couldn't kind of I just couldn't believe it to be. true. So here, here's my guess. I heard some I don't remember who floated this theory, but I thought it was a brilliant theory. Elizabeth Warren. What happened? My guess is probably Bernie said something to Elizabeth Warren in a private conversation, which he thought was between friends, where he said something along the lines of Donald Trump is a bigot. He's a racist. He's a sexist, and he weaponizes this, and he's going to weaponize it against whoever the Democratic candidate is, and that'll make it very difficult. And she spun that and interpreted it as Bernie sexist for pointing out that Trump is sexist and might weaponize that's gender. gender. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, look, two people, there were only three people in the room. Well, two people in the room and one person near the room that night, mm -hmm. right? Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren's husband are the only three people mm. in that area. So who... Who knows what was said? But if I were interpreting, yeah, because he absolutely said things like that. Yeah, so exactly. And, and, and she and, spun it on purpose. And you know, he had said, he had said, you know, if you had asked him, like, do you think it's a, your Judaism is an issue? He would have said, yeah, Donald Trump is going to use anti-Semitism. That's exactly that. He would have, he would have said, yes, it's going to be an issue. Donald Trump will use anti-Semitism. If you do, you think your age is an issue? Yes, Donald Trump is going to use. He would have, because he thought Donald Trump is a awful human being yeah. a bigot who is going to use the worst of American politics. And look, I, I, I'm bad on Twitter because I don't like to ascribe motivations to people. Right. And maybe that's the wrong instinct. So I, I try to see the best in people, even people I don't like. And maybe that's the wrong instinct here. So, you know, people hear different things in moments of stress. But I have to believe, just because of everything I've heard, what I have heard him say a hundred times is Donald Trump is the worst human being one of the worst people on earth and will use every like bigoted tool 
against whoever. She knew and, what she was doing. Well, and she Ari, knew what she was doing. Correct me if I'm it. wrong, but in 2016, before Bernie decides to jump in the race, he, wasn't he encouraging Elizabeth? He said Warren he wouldn't have jumped in if, if, if she, she ran. If she Bingo. Ran. That's exactly right. So I mean, it's just it's it's gutter politics. It was it was nasty, and it also, you know, and then maybe you want to ask some about the Biden piece, but. You know, on the other hand, you have Joe Biden, who was a longtime opponent of some of the core things that Elizabeth Warren cared about. I mean, she practically came into politics, like doing battle against Joe Biden and some of the bankruptcy stuff that he was pushing. And that stuff was like never introduced into the debate. And yet she's spending time prosecuting this case that Bernie Sanders is some and, secret and, sexist. And that pissed me off so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard. Did you want to no, no. take that? OK, uh, so now I want to talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden, because or actually, first, let me get to, you know, when the campaign sort of unraveled and then uh, and you ended up losing. So when it comes to strategy, and I remember because I was in touch with Faz, my yeah. claim to fame in this whole thing is that I was the person who facilitated Bernie getting on Joe Rogan, which on the one hand, I pat myself on the back <laughs> over it. But on the other hand, it's like I'm probably public enemy number one over that because it opened but up a whole I can of worms. something about yeah, that please. that I, I actually haven't talked about publicly? So it's just the power of Joe Rogan is incredible to me. And here's what's incredible about it. And it's something that I think, as we like, I think it has been a real strategic misstep to isolate the left from him. Yes. Totally agree. That's, first I mean, that's off, you're like, singing our tune. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, here's, but here's the amount of power he has. This is like, because there's this like perception that Joe Rogan's audience is a bunch of like. Meatheads. Meathead. Right wingers. Right wingers. Right. Yeah. So they're all that. So here's, here's what happened. We go on Joe Rogan. And, like, it goes up, I think, a day later. It, it was a very, it was a brief window. Um, and we had flown to Miami to do the, I want to say it was the NABJ uh, conference, the National Association of Black Journalists conference, us, that all the presidential candidates were asked to speak at. And we flew into Miami the night before, and we're only doing, like, NAB. We were, like, doing this one thing and flying out, which always made Bernie not happy to do events like that. But... We kind of had a night, a night a little bit down, and he was like, let's go get Cuban food. Mm -hmm. And he was like, basically, he's like, find, like, a strip mall Cuban, like, mom-and-pop Cuban restaurant. Let's go get some, like, real good Cuban food. Like, not fancy, but, like, the... So we found this, like, strip mall Cuban restaurant in Miami that had, like, really good reviews in, the, in a bunch of places. We went, and it's, like, mom-and-pop, the, the kind of families running it. And we're eating, and the the mother, who is at least fifty years old, a Cuban woman from Cuba, uh, you know, not the core Bernie voter, somebody who you would say walked up and said, "I heard you on Joe Rogan today," and basically before I didn't like you, but now that I've listened to you, I get it now. Mm. And she was like, and and we had a whole, she had a whole conversation, and this was like, a, you know, this was somebody who absolutely outside the stereotype and by the way like one day it wasn't like i heard about the joe rogan thing after all the stupid controversy on line it was literally like she was clearly downloading the joe rogan podcast every day and listening. listening to it and it was and by the way for weeks on end every day somebody would come up and talk mm -hmm. to bernie and it's look bernie's done every tv show in the world and I've been, I was with him for most of it, there was no other t TV show where anybody ever said anything like that. Okay, so thank you, because I was very proud to have facilitated that. And whenever anybody doubted him doing that, I would say, number one, go look at the view count. Right now it's at 14.5 million views. Number two, 
read the comments because the comments are here. I'll just give you guys a couple. I'm a conservative, but this was a great listen and a real mind opener. Uh, Bernie proved me wrong. He is actually for the people. We need him to be president. Bernie is so ridiculously well-versed. I'm amazed how coherent he is, even at his age. And that, that one's kind of funny. But anyway, it, it goes on. Mad respect for Bernie. I don't agree with everything he does, but I have a huge admiration and respect for his grit and service. And, the, like, the whole point of politics is to get people who might not normally agree with you to then agree with you. And when Joe endorsed Bernie... People were mad that, like, the Bernie campaign put, you know, cut a clip of it and sent it out well, there when he's the number the, one podcaster in the world. Can I tell you the other funny part of that? Like, reporters got obsessed. They're like, what was the strategic conversation with Bernie like about before you put that up? I was like, you think there was a strategic conversation about a tweet? Like, do you think? Yeah. Like, really? Well, and not to and mention, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's the number yeah. one podcaster in the world. world. He is like, one of the most influential like, there, public figures. They were like, well, is that wrong? And I was like, no, that team had, like, a... Their mandate was when they saw somebody... Famous and important endorsed Bernie, and there was video. Clip it. And put it out. Put it and, out. And the most important point is that Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders didn't endorse Joe Rogan. Didn't go, Bernie Sanders didn't go out there and say, you know, there was a transphobic joke in 1996 that I really loved and, when I heard it from Joe Rogan. Right. He didn't say that. <laughs> and, and by the way, Bernie was, has been kind of somebody who's been at the forefront of trans rights. And he wouldn't sacrifice. Like, he wouldn't sacrifice. Of course. Like, he, like, go to him. Go to those venues, go on Fox News, right, which was the other. And after the campaign, a reporter was like, a reporter in one of the postmortems was like interviewing me and was like kind of, I was getting yelled at because I was like one of the last people they interviewed. So I was getting all the like, they're like, well, you didn't do, your campaign didn't reach out outside your media bubble. I was like, we were the only campaign that reached out outside so the true. media bubble. Like, and got slammed for it. And, and, and I was yeah. like, look, they're, they're like, well, what if you had gone on, like, we got a critique that you didn't go to, like, a monastery with nuns. That was literally what this reporter said at one point. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a major political reporter. Like, I can't. You would know I the can't. name. And they were like, you didn't go to, like, this person critiqued you for not going to, like, a monastery with nuns. And I was like, okay, I don't know what the political benefit of that would be, but can we just take a step back from this? I was like, you keep saying we could do these things without cost. What do you think would have happened if we had went to a monastery with nuns? Do you not think... Like half the, the half the people who don't like Bernie from the Hillary thing, who are some who are who do some pro uh, pro choice politics, would be all up in Bernie if he went to a monastery. Right? How can you? Right? Like, I'm sure Bernie would have actually, if we had been invited to a monastery, Bernie probably would have wanted to go. He honestly. went to Liberty University. Right. He would and go. he told them like, look, we're not going to agree on a lot, but uh, let's talk about economics yeah. and no, income he, inequality. Like, that's the thing. He was always like. And there's the one interview that I really wanted Bernie to do that they turned us down, that I was, I, to this day, I, like, pushed it, like, pushed it until I could push no more with them, was rejected over, was kind of pushed off, pushed off, pushed what off, was and it? kept coming with Stern. It was Howard Stern. Mm. Tried. That would have been great. Tried. That would have been great. From the summer forward, they were, in the summer they were like, Oh, you know, it's too, it's, we don't want to be political. It's too far away from the election. Don't elections. want to be political. Okay. You're running for president. <laughs> like, Bullshit. No, this is the stern, like, they the were like, stern people. then they were like, if, oh, we oh, have, oh. if we have, we don't want to be political. He's running for, we don't want to have to have every political guest. And I was like, you don't have to, like, Rogan shows you don't have to have every. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bernie's in a category well, of his own. Stern's like a, a Hillary kind of guy. I mean, that's his yeah. politics. But let me point out, he has said in the past, the only person who defended him and because Bernie's been on the Stern show before. Mm -hmm. I was, know that. When it, Bernie was a member of the House, he went on Stern because he was the, he like wrote a letter to the FCC castigating them for going at Howard Stern. 
Bernie. I love this. I didn't even know that. Always. Bern had talked, uh, Stern had talked, like praised Bernie in 2000 and had talked in interviews that like remembered it and said, yeah, Bernie was like the only member of Congress to be like, screw you FCC. Like that's a real free speech guy. That's an actual free speech guy right there. Not this nonsense posturing today. Very true. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about, let's talk a little bit about, you know, something that, that Kyle and I both debated. Um, I know you said that you didn't think that there was anything that could have been done towards the end of the campaign to right. change the dynamics. But this is with the Biden thing. Yeah. Yeah. So look, because this is, I think, the real strategic point that people make that I don't think is, I think is a real question. Now, here's the thing. Let's start from, Ber- this was Bernie's call and Bernie wasn't going to do it. So ultimately, it did not matter what anybody thought Bernie that we will grant you to Bernie yeah. did yeah. not want that to we will grant attack you. Joe Biden. And so the moment. So I think February would have been too late. And the moment I talk about this pretty directly in the book, the moment where that if you think that was an error, which I I'm in the attack all the time category. So because I'm kind of a jerk. So <laughs> so I, I was for attack Biden, to be clear. Um and but if you think it was a mistake not to attack Biden, the mistake was made in September and it was ma- and it was a very particular moment I talk about in the book, which people can read for the details. But we went to. So Bernie was losing his voice. Remember, that was a debate where he sounded like Kermit the Frog. Yeah, that was he'd terrible. blown out his voice at a rally in Denver. We go to Boulder to prep for a debate. And what we say to him is, look, at the first two debates, you were in the center of the stage you're no longer in the center of the stage. It's now Biden and Warren in the center of the mm. stage. You're going to be out here. And the, and the media will do whatever it takes not to focus on you. Right. Because that's, that's how they hurt you here, is you aren't paid attention to. And so the only way you get paid attention is you have to make yourself the center of attention. And I, I always point to the Roger Ailes maxim on this. There are three things the media covers, pictures, mistakes, and attacks. That's it. So get the best pictures you can, don't make mistakes, and attack, and you get covered, right? The media can't resist those three things. Um, and he said, look, the, what you can do up there, the only, the main thing you can do to get attention is walk on stage during your opening statement, and everybody's, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be not what you want to do. Everyone's going to deliver these flowery, nice opening statements because that's what had been going on at the debates. Everyone's going to be delivering this like aspirational, aspirational thing. Yeah. You go out there and you like rip Joe Biden. That's what you do in your opening. You just you basically say to him, I'm summarizing like you're out here claiming you have the experience to be president, but every experience you've had has been wrong. You've been wrong about NAFTA. You're wrong with the and just rip him on everything and basically say, Joe, like this isn't personal, but I think your experience makes you not qualified to be president. And Bernie didn't do that. And well, uh, in the book, I go through the story. It's, you know, uh, Jeff Weaver helped write a, um, the statement with Bernie, sat with Bernie, wrote a statement with Bernie. Bernie practiced the statement and kind of agreed to deliver it at prep. We went into the green room and he practiced it and it just, the air went out. And when he walked out of the green room towards the stage, um, 
it, I turned to Faz, I was like, do you think he's gonna do it? And Faz just like shook his head like this isn't. Like, and this was like the exact opposite from the debate before in Detroit, which was the debate with I wrote the damn bill and like real feisty Bernie mm -hmm. debate. Um, what happened there was completely different. We walked into the green room and Bernie was like, literally like completely low energy, kind of slumped in this tiny chair yeah. and in the green room and John Delaney sends out a press release. It's like, I'm gonna call Bernie a communist. And <laughs> Jeff literally texts Faz and I is like, read Bernie the press release. So we, we read him the press release and he was like, do you remember that, that song, like the Charlie Brown song? I love that song as a kid. Why is everybody always picking on me? And Faz started like playing the song on his phone and Bernie's dancing around the room, airboxing, goes on the stage and just like kind of mo like mows down everybody. This like completely opposite. Went from entering the room high energy to just after he wrote out the speech and gave it, just like, you could just see he like didn't want to attack Joe and he just mm. kind of lost, and he go down stage and look, the problem was first off his voice was the focus of everything because it sounded like utter yeah. garbage. Um, but also like his, he gave like the Bernifesto, which we all love the Bernifesto, right? right? Mm -hmm. We love Medicare for all, we love to talk about that, but it wasn't gonna get any that's attention. Right, that's true. And, and the problem is what we had told him is you have to do it when you walk out, because if you don't, it doesn't set the tone. Because he did some of the stuff in that thing he kind of snuck in later, but it wasn't in one punch, it wasn't succinct, and it wasn't at the beginning. Didn't and set the table the point, for the, the whole The problem discussion. is we always knew, strategically, we always knew more than any other candidate if Joe Biden could consolidate the field after South Carolina, then he can win. Then, then he's like, if it's a Bernie Biden race on Super Tuesday, that is not politically advantageous matchup on Super Tuesday for Bernie. If it's kind of one on one there, which, for all intents and purposes, like Bloomberg was a non-factor. Warren was yeah. non. Mayor like, Pete. Mayor, well, Mayor Pete's dropped out. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, was a non-factor, and either we have to get to a multi-way race on Super Tuesday, or n definitely not against Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. And it's because just the math of this. It was this beer track wine track, meaning if Bernie and Joe are splitting the beer track and then like Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg are splitting the wine track right. up, if it's just Joe Biden and Bernie, Bernie doesn't get any of the wine track and Joe Biden just dominates. So, so he gets. But he, so here's the thing, though, because yeah. it actually is true that Bernie did attack Joe Biden, especially when they were one on one. I remember very clearly in those debates when he was, you know, he would attack him on whatever, the Patriot Act, he would right. attack him on NAFTA, he would attack him on the Iraq War, and he did go down the policy list. So it was, you know, very substantive but it critiques. Wasn't, it wasn't succinct, it wasn't... Well, so to me that wasn't the issue. Let me, let me explain what I think the issue okay. is and then I'll let you respond. To me, it, it was a few things. Number one, what we learned from all the polling is this, this election was mostly about electability yeah. in the age of Trump. And so then the question is, well, how does Bernie make that electability argument in a way that lands politically? And this is something I had conversations with Faz about where I was trying to give him advice to see if it would maybe get through to Bernie, where he would have had to make the argument, uh, we ran this experiment already in 2016. We ran the safe establishment candidate and it didn't work. Unless you want another Trump term, well, you have was, to vote for me. I'm the only one who can beat Donald Trump. That was, and if I didn't state this clearly, I'm sorry. That was the core of the September debate idea was it was 
this basic these positions that you took make you unelectable. It's got to be quicker. It's got to be comparing Biden to Hillary. Biden is Hillary. Biden is Hillary. That's the part. That's the part he wouldn't do, which is the problem. But then there's one other problem too, which is. It, even though he was going in on all the specific policy disagreements, right. he framed it as, look, I like Joe Biden. He's my friend. This is a gentleman's policy disagreement. Yes. The argument he had to make was, this is not a gentleman's policy disagreement. This guy is a product of the machine. He is corrupt. When Zephyr Teachout wrote that article calling Joe Biden corrupt and giving a plethora of evidence to prove that, Bernie got mad at Zephyr Teachout, and Bernie said, we're not going to do that kind of politics. But and Bernie it, it, personally apologized to Joe Biden. It, which is insane. Bernie, That the reason why you have to go with that line of attack is because it's true, is because it's accurate. It's not, it wasn't about Bernie. It's all, Think of the, the person who had to cobble together their last $5 or $10 to give it to Bernie Sanders in the hopes that this guy's going to try to plow through the field and right, win. And, the, and then at the last minute, he, he doesn't go with the harsh attacks that are needed. And the look, with Bernie, the thing to note about him, Right. Despite staff advice, despite anything else, because I think if you polled staff, I would say 95 percent. I would say, first off, I think every senior staff member probably agreed with you and probably I would say 95 percent of the campaign probably felt the same way. But here's the thing about Bernie. He like it's not just he believes in an ideology. He has a very strong belief within himself about the way to he wants to campaign and the way he wants to conduct himself in a campaign that he doesn't just want uh, to win a campaign. He wants to kind of shape how that campaign is won. And that's as deep a part of his ideology. And the idea and attacking Joe Biden in that way was very clearly. And I think that's a step too far for him. And he just wouldn't do it. And but it's factual. And, that's the problem. And, you know, look, you got to speak facts. That has to come first. Right. And the, but the other side of that problem is. The thing about Bernie is he's never going to not be Bernie. And right. that's and that's the it's what we love about him. And it's also look, the 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 superpowers are also the weaknesses and the weaknesses are also the superpowers. Because I agree. if Bernie I, I tell the story in the book, the T-shirt story in the book, I think, is like the best like physical exemplar of this. Did I tell it on the other show, the T-shirt? I, I think you did. But tell it again for Kyle if you didn't hear it. The, so we're in South Carolina. This is early for the uh, Jim Clyburn's world-famous South Carolina fish fry, right, which is the first event of the campaign where all the candidates are in a room together, and it's this whole weird, awkward thing, and all the candidates are together, and Bernie, Bernie and Joe Biden are chatting for the first time, and the Clyburn staff comes out with Jim Clyburn fish fry T-shirts, which, by the way, are like cheap political T-shirts that haven't been washed, so they're not even, you know, when the, you know just hanging down off you like... And they give the T-shirts out to every candidate, and they're like, okay, put on the T-shirt before you go out on stage. And they line up the candidates in the order they're going to be speaking. And it is, by the way, a wicked hot South Carolina night, and they're going to make all the candidates stand outside next to the stage out of the air conditioning. And the room we were in, it was just like, let's torture some, like, let's make every Democratic candidate look terrible. <laughs> um, and, and Bernie takes the T-shirt, so they hand all the, every candidate had one staff member there. They hand me the T-shirt. I go to Bernie. I was like, put on the T-shirt. Everyone's putting on the T-shirts. He puts on the T-shirt, looks at himself, takes off the T-shirt, hands it back to me. He's like, I'm not wearing this. <laughs> no, Senator, you got to wear Why? Because are oh, they going to not make, let me go on stage? Like, I'm not, not going to wear this. And he, like, won't. And, like, I argue with him for, like, five minutes. I'm like, okay. Like, there's, you hit a limit with Bernie where you're like, 
I've lost. Yeah. It's over. I retreat. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. The James Clyburn staff literally, if they have knives, they would be in like every angle. It would be, <laughs> it would be like Jon Snow, just oh everyone's God. stabbing me. Because they can't blame Bernie, right? It's got to be my fault. So like they, they're like, like your boss isn't wearing the t-shirt. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> and like, that, like of course he goes out on stage and, and all the reports are like, why isn't Bernie wearing the Jim Clyburn t-shirt? And look. First off, Bernie's right. These guys are running to be the most powerful person in the world. Do they yeah. really have to wear a stupid costume that right. makes them look yeah. like on a burning hot South Carolina evening that just it just makes them look stupid? Like he's right. But also as a staff member, you sit there and you're like, why can't he be like a normal politician? Right. Just, just yeah. like, on a damn t-shirt. Just, just, just yeah. Put on yeah. the t-shirt you wear. Which by the way, he then when they took the group photo, he put on the t-shirt, which was a big accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> big feather in the cap. He's like, and he put it on himself. I was just like, but by the way, there's a picture I have in my book because I have a section of pictures, and it's a picture that I never put up on social media for a number of reasons, but I decided to put it in the book because it was just, to me, it was telling because it was the first time Bernie and Biden had seen each other in years. And before he goes out on stage, it's him and Biden like giving each other five and like, mm. like Joe Biden's like, go knock him dead, Bernie. And like, it was just, like it goes to that relationship where you know there were multiple times on the campaign where you just saw there was there was an affection between them yeah that i think like there was once and bernie didn't see this one like this was completely like bernie did not witness this we were like backstage at one of the forums and it was in Iowa, and we're like in like a convention center in one of those stupid hallways with all the equipment and we walked by and bernie and joe biden see each other and they're like Hey, Bernie. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Da, da, da. Bernie walks on. I'm kind of trailing behind dealing with something. And Biden's standing there with like what looked like a bunch of like major Democratic uh, donors type people. Mm. And one of them goes like, that guy sucks. And Ber Joe, Joe Biden like went Joe Biden on him. Like, God, and they go, no, Bernie's a good guy and he's good for this party. And don't you dare. Like, Bernie, Joe Biden's like out. Like, Bernie never saw it. Bernie was like... Mm -hmm. 100, 200 feet away at that point. And Joe Biden's like yelling at a major donor in the so, middle of this hallway okay, about how great Bernie is. That, but that's really interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, um, it's only human nature sometimes for the personal to override the political. But when the stakes are really high, you almost feel like you have to let the opposite be true. But that actually leads to my biggest issue with how Bernie handled the way out, which is... I remember when he dropped out and he, you know, backed Biden and they did that like hostage video where they're sitting next to each other and Bernie's like, okay, Joe, do you like support? Two, it was like Zoom window hostage. Yeah. yeah like, do right. you support a $15 minimum wage? And Joe's like, yeah, bro. I don't know where I am, but okay, that sounds good. And so, and, and I remember watching that and I was thinking, I understand what they're trying to do here, but what I actually would have wanted Bernie to do on the way out is, especially since they have that good relationship, have Bernie sit down with Joe and tell him, look, I will endorse you, I will back you, I will support you, I will campaign for you, but only if here's a list of five or 10 executive orders that you're gonna sign within the first week in office. Legalize marijuana, free all the nonviolent drug offenders, you know, go down the list, abolish student loan debt. But instead of getting those like hardcore concessions, it was all like the things that would have to get through Congress and then when like, it doesn't get through Congress, and, yeah, yeah, when it doesn't get through Congress, then Biden could just be, I tried. It's like, no, that's why you need to get hardcore uh, concessions from him. And I didn't see that. And that actually really frustrated me because I know Bernie's smart enough to think of a strategy like that. And, and I would say, I, I say this in the book pretty clearly, that was one thing I actually wasn't involved in because I'm not, 
I wouldn't send myself into negotiations with Joe Biden at that moment in my life. It would mm. not have worked out nicely <laughs> for anybody. Um, I was fairly upset at that moment. So right, it would yeah. not have, as was I. It would not have, I, I was like, um, I, I think what I think, I don't know what would have come out of that. I really don't. I think like on the legalized marijuana thing, right? I think Joe Biden just fundamentally is an old dude who disagrees. So make it Schedule like, 3 no, instead of Schedule like, 1. Like something, just, something, no, something. Like, and look, I think, oddly, he would be in a much better political... I, if he does it now, I actually don't think it... Now it just, oh, you're just doing it for the... Elect, it just, it kind of... It's not... It would be good to do because it's the right thing to do, but he would, wouldn't earn the political benefit he would have done had it been the first week coming in, yeah, getting it done. Oh, but... So I want him to do it. I just, I don't know how you get there with him on that particular issue. And on the negotiations, I, it's the one thing I legitimately really have never known anything about mm. on any firsthand basis and kind of was not involved in it and don't know how that went down, actually. Oh, I was just frustrated with Bernie in that moment. Yes. Yeah, that video, I, we actually played a little bit of that video in another context for Breaking Points today, and it was still like... Oh, oh. you watched it today? Yeah. Oh, what are the chances of that? Yeah. Well, because I was making the point that, you know, like, Democrats lifted the minimum wage to 725, but they didn't add in the automatic trigger to keep it lifting. Why? Because they want, they like to have the minimum wage right. out there as a political issue. And so I use that as an example to say, and you know, this was in the context of Roe versus Wade being um, set to be overturned and saying basically like, y'all had super majorities, you've had real majorities, you promised, you know, Obama promised this was a day one action, and you've known for decades that this was the end goal of this conservative movement. So what is the compelling case to people that if you elect Democrats this time, they're going to do what they've promised you before and failed to do? But that's another another topic for another day. Well, but the, the biggest problem with the election this time is there's kind of like my offer is nothing from Democrats. Right. Which it, it concerns me in that like, well, we can't do anything without 60 votes becomes, okay, so you can't do anything because we had by the way, 60 votes for the first two years of Obama, at least Bingo. a year of that. And you look at like the things that weren't done, which now looking back and there's every excuse in the world, and we've all heard them yeah. for not doing them, but it's not just like, where would the union movement be if they had done what they had promised and passed the employee, what free the employee free act. choice act, mm -hmm. which doesn't even get talked about it. Now it's like the pro act, which is a weaker version yes. of the employee free choice act. Like what, what would have happened if you had passed the Employee Free Choice Act back then to the union movement? What would have happened if you had raised the minimum wage at that moment? What would have happened if you, like, you can go down a dozen things that aren't, like, new to the agenda. Right. Like, that are just, were, like, like, EFCA was a very, like, clear promise. The, mm, the, uh, the, the league, making Roe v. Wade law was a very clear promise of the, uh, uh, of the uh, of the Obama years and my my and the Carter years and the Carter yes there was a number of different presidents who had my, that super my favorite is I got into an I like rarely get into arguments on Twitter I got into an argument like months ago with one of these like centrist schools who was like you know if you get rid of the filibuster it'll just be you know if you elect Republicans like and they gave the example like Roe v Wade would be law and if you elect the Democrats uh, Roe v Wade would be eliminated if you elect the Democrats Roe v Wade would be law and I was like that's good. That's democracy. Like, that's called like, democracy. Yeah. <laughs> First off, that's good. You're gonna leave this up to the people? That's because, Gross. well, it's good because then elections have consequences. Mm -hmm. You right. want people to vote? 
you know what? If there are 50 votes in the chamber, guess what's going to happen? Laws are going to get on. Parliamentary systems, 10, like straight parliamentary systems, you know when you vote, by the way, there will be a prime minister and he will have a majority in parliament and they will be able to pass laws. Yeah. It's a weakness in our system. Well, and Obama has this whole shtick now about like basically chastising voters for not being super enthused to go out and vote for like... But that not was, a lot. Is that what it said in that long statement <laughs> was, I didn't read on Roe like, v. Wade that he released? I'm not sure what he said in his Roe v. Wade statement, oh, okay. to be but fair. But I remember he went and campaigned for the um, New Jersey governor. Oh, right, yeah. And he did this whole, like, you know... You're Don't not move. Gonna, Vote. You're not going <laughs> to... Yeah, you're not going to get Look, everything and, you want, and we try, you know... And I'm in the people should vote camp, right? Yeah, of like, course. Like, go vote. Yes. Like, but I also think Democrats have to give voters... Like, you can't say go vote and you're not going to get anything for it. Yeah. Like, the Obama thing... The thing I always encourage people to read that I think was the most telling of Obama, uh, read the post he put up, and he put it up himself and he wrote it himself on Daily Coast when he was a senator about, uh, it was either the Alito or the Roberts confirmation process where he like chastised um, like Daily Coast readers and which kind of represented like the- like The, the left flank at the time, right. right. Like yeah. chastised them for suggesting that the nomination should be tanked. Like, go read this post that he wrote. Like, I didn't know about well, that. Well, didn't he, like, get—wasn't it Lieberman who he, like, looked to when he first got to the Senate well, that was as, like, like his assigned, guiding force? That was his assigned mentor. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Lieberman. Lieberman. Who's basically a Republican now. That's interesting, though, about the Daily Coast thing. He was basically a Republican that. then. That, yeah. No, that's right. I mean, but there was actually a video of Obama that I played on my show before where he's—I think it was—I don't know if it was, like, to Al Jazeera. It was some outlet that wasn't too out there, but there's a, a clip where he says, uh, look— uh, my politics are basically that of a 1980s moderate Republican. And I remember watching that thinking, he just admitted it. <laughs> like, yeah. He just By said the, the way, thing. The most amazing thing about the Lieberman thing is Lieberman ends up endorsing McCain. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. Well, so what do you make of Bernie? Well, Faz put out this memo saying, you know, yes. if Biden doesn't run, which is a big if, I think Biden will probably run. But if he doesn't run, Bernie hasn't closed the door to 2024. What did you do? You think that's true? Do you think he's really considering it? What are you hearing? Look, when I wrote the book, and you can kind of tell by the way I wrote it, I was like, okay. He's not running again, right? In my mind, I was like, just not going to, like, first off, Biden's going to run in 2024, and then what, you'd have a 90-year-old, an 87-year-old running for president, and that's probably not going to happen. 80's the new 40, apparently. Well, I'm 40, and I feel 80, so <laughs> 40's the new feel 80. Feel you on that, brother. Um, but he, uh, the thing about Bernie and is, like, the man is like inhuman in energy, right? Like the weekend they put that memo out, he's in Staten Island with the Amazon workers. The same day he's in Richmond with Starbucks. Then like I'm in DC that week and like, you know, I, I like Twitter's lighting up because he's outside the White House literally like protesting for student debt relief outside the White House at like eight in the morning, like the next day. And like he has this like crazy amount of energy, which frankly, Look, when I left the office, that was the reason I had to leave because I was like, I cannot keep up with you. Like, my health and well-being does not allow me to keep up with you. <laughs> and you need people who can, like, move at your pace. Wow. And I cannot anymore. And this was, like, a year after the presidential where he didn't stop. Like, he, you know, I, you know, in that fall, he's like, the fall uh, where Biden's running, he's like, okay, what do we do? And, like, COVID's everywhere you really can't 
travel all that much. We kind of don't know what the world is. There's no, the vaccines were like in development, but nobody knew when they were going to get approved. And he was like, no, more, 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 more. And it was like, Bernie, there's nothing left. Like, I, I was like, do you think it's making a difference here? And he was like, I don't care. Like, if I can do something and it's one voter, I don't right. want to wake up. And I feel like if he feels there is a chance to push his issues, because the truth is the overwhelming problem we face is as much as I do think Bernie has moved the Democratic Party from where it was, certainly when I started in D.C. to a different place, you do not get, the, like, without Bernie Sanders in the White House or a somebody of Bernie Sanders' values in the White House or somebody even to the left of Bernie in the White House, you don't get, you don't get marijuana rescheduled. You don't get, you need a, if you want Medicare for all, you actually need a president who will sign it, not just sign it, like actively, like that's going to be the fight of, yeah. that's not yeah. just signing a bill. That's like, that'll be holy war in this right. country that's to get true. that done. And you need a president who is like, not just like, I want this, but like willing to like go out and right. like put it on the line, put it on the line and basically mm -hmm. say, this is it. I'm doing that. Co like, Co like student debt and college stuff. We've seen like Biden's being like, it seems like he's moving in a good. Yeah. Maybe I'll means test it and do 10K. Yeah. But that's, that's the problem. And by the way, the, I was talking to like, I was talking to a Democratic, Democratic strategist let's call it, the other day. I was having coffee with one who I've known for a while. And they were, and this is somebody who's more, much more conservative than us. And they were lamenting. They were like, what a bad strategy. And I go, I'm shocked to hear you say this. They're like, no, he's like, if you're going to do student debt, just do it. Like, he's like, the means testing thing just means a whole bunch of people who think they're getting something aren't. And you're just going to piss them. You're just going to piss off your own voters. He's yeah, like, if you're going to do it, you're going to take the crap anyway. So do it. Do it for everybody. Take the crap and be done. Bold, universal. That's like, the way to don't, go. Don't do, like, why Why shoot yourself in the... When you're trying to give yourself a prize, why shoot yourself in the... Why only do 10,000? That was, that was the whole story Easily. of Build Back Better is basically, like, every week you learn something, <laughs> some new program that's getting shot in the head until yep. you end up ultimately mm -hmm. with Well, nothing. the Build Back Better thing... That's right. There are two... I just... I know this is totally off topic. There were two moments in Build Back Better where one day I want to understand the strategic decisions that were made because they make absolutely no sense to me. One, I, the first one is Schumer signing the like deal with Manchin and then not telling anybody about it. Yes, like, right. Look, if you're going to sign it, then go to Bernie and the committee chairs, go to Pelosi, go to the White House and say, look, this is what I can get him to do. We have to think about this now, not like keep it a secret and wait five months where everyone's wasting their time running around like, we might right. not have gotten anything, but at least you're not wasting five months People's running around time. like chickens yes. without their heads. But then there's the other moment that I do question because I do think it could have actually changed the dynamic. And it was when Mitch McConnell handed Biden and Schumer and Pelosi like a huge present and they like kicked it away. Out of, and I don't understand why. What was the present? Mitch McConnell said in the, in the spring, I will not provide you a single Republican vote for raising the debt ceiling. But you could just do it through reconciliation. So why not just do debt ceiling through reconciliation? And Pelosi and Schumer are like, no, no, no. Republicans voted for debt ceiling. We have to do this through regular order. Da, 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 da. We're not doing debt ceiling through reconciliation. We're not going to do it. To me, and, and they ended up in like some weird kludgy thing where like they voted for, they did this weird process yeah. to get it through. Instead of saying, yeah, Mitch McConnell's absolutely right. The only way we're going to be able to raise the debt ceiling is do this. Because 
Look, Manchin and Cinema, they're toxic figures, but they're not, they're actually not going to vote no on raising the debt. So ceiling. put Bill Back better with that? So then the second reconciliation bill becomes a debt ceiling and some form of Build Back Better, but what that does, it sets a hard deadline. Mm. Right. We have to get this done by, there's a clock on that, and we all know DC, only things get done are on a clock. That's right. Yeah. And then I feel like, I don't know if you win, but at least I feel like you're in a fighting chance of a the... of doing it because you've now forced, you, know, you said, hey, we can't just do the debt ceiling. We have to provide something here. We have to, you know. This is the former Reed staffer thinking this through. The former Harry well, Reed staffer. <laughs> look, it's, you know, whenever you're confused by an, you know, an action of a Democrat, I always say <laughs> there's two things you look to right away. It's both incompetence and it's corruption. In the case of Manson and Cinema particularly, it's the corruption that's the yeah. overarching force. But with a lot of them, it's, it's some mix of incompetence and corruption and you shift it in terms of what percentage goes to each, this, depending on the politics. This one, question. I just feel like people were stuck in like this 1990s deficit mindset where, oh, we can't just have, nobody gives a shit about the Ooh, debt ceiling. Well, Diane Feinstein actually thinks it's in the 1990s right now. <laughs> she does. That's Harsh, harsh yeah. but true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, harsh but true. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, Ari, is just, you know, we watched um, Nina Turner lose for a second time to Chantel Brown. Yeah this week, which was hard to watch, um, and maybe even harder than watching her lose, was the fact that other than Senator Sanders endorsing her and supporting her, I mean, she was basically abandoned. Like, Justice Democrats didn't support her. Congressional Progressive Caucus not only doesn't support her, but backs Chantel Brown. AOC was the only member of the squad to endorse, and she did it literally 12 hours before voting even started in the district. And for someone who, I mean, Nina has been there for this movement, um, rock solid from before it was cool to be with Senator and Sanders. And is clearly the better candidate in that race. Oh. Like, it's not even like... It's, for, put the so, politics aside, so, this incredibly capable, politically talented oh, somebody, human Somebody being. said to me, it's like, somebody who I do like in D.C. said to me after the race, like, you know, Chantel Brown's a progressive. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, stop. Get Please. those words out of your mouth. So, I mean, what was, like, what do you make of that? And And it wasn't... You know, I'd love to just pin it on, like, disappointments in elected progressive officials, but the truth is that the base let her down, too. I mean, she didn't raise nearly the money that she raised last time. And I do think post-Bernie, there's, uh, you know, some anti-electoralism, like, nihilist instinct that, frankly, is just a gift to yeah. Clyburn and Pelosi and all the rest. I mean, first, we have to start with, like, we do have to start with the institutionalists because of what course. the Progressive Caucus did there was just inexcusable. And calls into question, like, what's the point of the Progressive There is no. Chantel yes. Brown is in the New Democrat Coalition and the right. Congressional Progressive right. Caucus, which to anybody who understands politics and ideology knows, that is a contradiction. You have right. to pick one. And, you know, I've been for a long time the advocate of the, because the Progressive Caucus, they like to strategically be like, we're one of the biggest, we have like 100 members. And I'm like, it's far better to have 30 members who are like who are actually progressive because like it's not just like you're in the new democrats it's like not every member of the progressive caucus is a co-sponsor of medicare for all not every member of the progressive caucus is a co-sponsor of the green new deal useless not every useless. member like isn't there some like base like are there not five base bills that we can just generally agree like you're not a progressive unless you support those five i'm not right. even talking like you have to support everything i'm saying like, if There's you don't support the here. basics, yeah, if the you're basics. not co-sponsoring Medicare for all, can you call yourself a progressive? If you're not co-sponsoring the green, like you can, you know, it wouldn't take long to come up with this. And like, 
how many people would that limit? And, and would it, you know, the power of members of Congress, especially with narrow majorities, is you just need 20 people punching. You don't need, you don't need 100 people doing nothing. And, but then when you do, look, and I've generally liked Pramila Jayapal. I generally have in the past supported her in stuff. But this, to me, was, you know, it was this moment of like, you know, I am an insider, right? I have to wear that on me. I've worked, I worked for Harry Reid. I've worked for a lot of people in democratic politics. But like, it broke me almost because it was, it's just like, Nina is a far better candidate and it is, it's, it's beyond, it was, it was disgusting. And I, like, I actually texted Nina a text, which probably could not read in you might get you demonetized <laughs> at well, a certain point if I, if, if, uh, if I read the text. Because um, I was just so, I, it, like, it was so disgusting. Because, like, look, you could do the cowardly thing and, and just stay out. Stay out. Right. Which, like, fine. Like, we could you know somewhat what? understand I, it, but still piss, I disagree. But, right. But I get it. You, she's a member of the caucus, da, 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 da. It's stupid. I'm still going to say it's stupid. Right. But... You know, at least I can, like, see your logic. This was... This... So so you start there, and then... But then I do think that feeds this nihilism where... Oh, definitely. Look, yeah. where, you know, there, there are only so many progressives active in politics. And what I mean by that is, let's say there are, like, five to six million... Not people who believe in progressive values, but people potential for progressive activists, progressive donors, people to do the work, the people who pay attention to politics every day, mm -hmm. right? That's a smaller, there's like 100 million people in this country who might potentially vote 150 million, but the people who will like do the actual work progressives need to get done, you're maxing out at that range. And what you're telling those people is their work doesn't matter. And this fits a pattern of stuff that has really disturbed me, frankly, for the past two years. Because I feel like during the Bernie campaign, there was a project for mm -hmm. that group of activists to engage in, right? The Bernie campaign was the project to accomplish their ideological goals. And not to like kick a trash barrel onto your set for a second, but like when force the vote happens, right? What I was kind of like, thinking this whole time is the problem the problem you face here towards the insiders those of you like the people on the inside complaining about force the vote not liking force the vote is what are you giving these people to do that's constructive that's right. and functional and if you're and do if you're, something do if something well if you're if you're not telling activists these activists want to do something to support medicare for all and they want medicare for all beyond any politician and if if you're not going to lead, other people will. And look, we can talk about the strategy and was it right. Throw that all aside. Progressive Caucus is in a position to come up with an alternative strategy and present it to people and they didn't. give people something to do. And when you don't, you can't complain when activists are activists no, that's and exactly activists right. on you. And it was even exactly worse right. because instead what we got was... Finger wagging. You all don't understand, yeah. and how dare you? Right. You're not even, even an approved activist. And you don't even know what we're doing behind the scenes to get on committees that are going to matter, and you got to trust us. And so it was not just 
listen, guys, we don't think that's the right strategy, and here's another more productive way. It was actively like sort of contempt and so, scorn of you don't really and, and understand. To me, what that was the difference here. between. By the way, to me, that was the difference. Say what you will about Harry Reid, not a perfect progressive, but the thing he taught me was how to play those games. What what I mean by that is, uh, in 2005 main focus was defending Social Security from George Bush, who wanted to privatize it. Um, and Harry Reid played this, like, brilliant game here. And what I me mean by that is, on the inside, he was every, but every member's best friend. Mm. On the outside, he was having me leak to bloggers. Any politician who wavered at all, mm. he asked me to go to bloggers and give names out. And then there would be, like, swarms of people at these senders. And Reed would be like, I don't know where that came from. Oh, we'll clean it up. Our office can clean that up. But you have to go out and say, da, da, da. Like, yeah, guess what? If you do have an inside plan, come up with a way for the activists to be a, like, learn to play both sides, guys. Like, you know, what can you do? What or can these activists do? do just to, do something. Right, like, that was the problem. We're sitting there watching these representatives, and they're doing nothing. And they're like, well, we're here. We have an idea. Maybe you should try this. And it's just like, we can't do that for reasons and stuff and, and things. It's like, okay, then what are you going to do? And it was right. And that's, yeah. and that's, that's the point is the people with actual institutional power. If you don't tell, weren't telling people what to do. And I, I really do tie this whole thing together because you go from there to not endorsing Nina is just incredibly, it, it just. It's transparent. It's is what it, it is. And I, I have to say, like, I have never, like, Having worked side by side with Nina for this campaign and knowing Nina as somebody who was a fighter, you know, for our values, a just unstoppable force, knowing her as a member of Congress, I honestly do believe, like, it would have actually been a little bit seismic because I don't think, I like, that too. I, I, I just think just knowing her, she wouldn't have, there's a lot of things that even men, people we like sometimes have to kind of kowtow to, which she just wouldn't do. She yeah, that's what I said. So I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, and I always said now in retrospect, looking back at it, our problem was that we vetted solely based on are you with us on the policies? There should have been another type of vetting. Are you a leader? Because if you agree with us on the policies, but you can't lead your way out of a paper bag, then ultimately it comes to naught. If your answer is like, I can never stand up, I can never fight, I can never get into a back and forth with the media, I can never risk having a neg negative article run about me. And Nina is off the charts on that leadership quality. She's there on the policy, but she's also there on the well, leadership stuff. and clearly the establishment forces recognize yes. that yes. she could be that yes. sort of you don't size. She could have garnered 12 spend. votes and used that like the Tea Party used to, to like, oh, we're going to get what we want and, and we're going to force way, you to do it. And by the way, you have one, this is what people know, you have one person like that in Congress. And let, let me like set some boundaries. Like that's not going to pass you Medicare for all, right? right? But it is going to create a new dynamic because on places where you need to block something or you get a little bit more leverage, having one person taking that stand will bring six, seven other That's right. That's, that's right. exactly right. That's no, right. They don't get it. Anyway, we got to wrap it up. We've gone way over. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Ari, No, I'm really grateful for your time. We Pleasure. Don't you too long. And everybody, the get the book. Please the please Fighting buy. Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. Ari Rabenhoft, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, guys. Great to see you, Ari. Thank you. All right, so that was Ari Rabenhoft. And, um, you know, the thing that is unusual about Ari is he is a consummate insider. I mean, this is a guy who worked for Harry Reid and saw all of the tricks of the trade from that vantage point. 
but he's not in D.C. anymore, and he's kind of ready to, I mean, he's ready to just be a, a free man and tell it like it is. And one of the things he was sharing with us is just how incredibly done and frustrated he is with progressives, especially after the Nina Turner stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for anybody not to be because <laughs> if True. you assume that, hey, these people mean what they say and that they want these various policies implemented, well, if you're endorsing Chantel Brown over Nina Turner, it's hard to it's hard to come to the conclusion that you actually mean what you say. Like, the thing that obviously is first and foremost, at least for Pramila Jaipal, is I think I have a shot at being speaker, so I have to play that inside game to become speaker. Yep. I can't piss, piss off Pelosi too much. And so you do something like endorse Chantel Brown, and um, guess what? You're not going to be speaker. Not going to happen. They don't like you. Because if you deviate from them 5%, you're out. Yeah. They want the most loyal kiss asses there are. And, you know, Hakeem Jeffries is probably going to end up being speaker. So you sold your soul. No values left. And for what? For what? You know, I don't know how these people sleep at night. I really don't. Yeah. No, I agree with you. So, I mean, it was also interesting to hear from Ari that basically the entire staff agreed with us that... Bernie needed to go harder at Biden and just was like constitutionally incapable of doing it. And then, um, you know, it's hard to defend the lack of like a hard negotiation at the end of the campaign. And this was, again, you know, it did feel like a real failure of, you know, the the goals and the movement. I mean, the people who scraped together a few dollars to send in thinking this is going to really be the path to change. And then, you know, at that point, the writing was on the wall. No one really blamed him for dropping out. But that you don't drive a hard bargain in that moment to get something tangible that you can take to the people that have supported you and say, look, we came up short, but at least we got these few things. It's hard not to see that as a big failure. That's actually my biggest thing I'm um, upset with Bernie about, you know, the, the not going hard enough at Biden thing. Like I like I pointed out, he actually did go after him on the policies, and in his mind, he thought, that's enough. I'm going after him on the Iraq War. I'm going after him on the Patriot Act. I'm going after him on NAFTA. I'm going after him on all these different things. So he thought, that's enough. I'm giving specific criticisms. It's very policy and substance focused. But again, the problem was, oh, it's a gentleman's disagreement, and you didn't go on corruption. You didn't make the electability case in any serious way. But the part that really I just thought was unforgivable was, you know, I'm going to suspend my campaign and not even ask for hard concessions because yeah. then you give him the wiggle room to just not do it and still walk out, you know, like, hey, it's fine. Yeah. And that's absolutely. just totally inexcusable. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. And so some things that Biden could have done still remain undone and on the table in part because of the failures in that moment. Um, the book is The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. And final point. Yeah. He is, uh, he is exactly who I thought he was. Yes. Off air, in terms, I mean, in terms I of his he, personality. Yeah, he's he's what you think he is. Right, I mean, exactly. It's, it's mm -hmm. very much what you see is what you get, which is part of why so many it's people. It's part of the appeal, It's got, but it's got the upsides and then the downsides. Which, yes, very so. much so. But I read the book. There's really some other very interesting and also some very entertaining anecdotes in there as well. There's a part Ari talks about where he go, they go in for like a meeting with Facebook, and Facebook is just basically trying to tell them like what to do and like openly admitting that they sort of like screwed them over in the algorithm. There's all kinds of insights interesting um, scoops in there. So highly recommend the book. It's an enjoyable read. It's an interesting read. And Kyle, you want to do our own pitch if you guys like what we do here? Sure, yeah. Uh, everybody go to Substack and $5 a month gets you the video of all of the interviews and it gets it to you a day early. Everybody else can listen 
for free and it drops a day later. By the way, sign up on Substack anyway because if you, if you could sign up for free and then you get, as soon as our uh, podcast drops, the audio version of it, it'll come right to your email box. So that's easier if you do, do it that way. And again, if you want to get the video version, you just do it, um, you sign up and you get it a day before. And um, we don't take any advertiser money for this show. By the way, I found one other podcast that doesn't do it. Oh, yeah? As far as I know, it's the only other one that I've seen that doesn't do it. It was Citations Needed okay. with Adam Johnson and Nima Shirazi. They do all their stuff the way we do it, where it's just all the money that we get is all through the you know, small $5 donations every month. So I want to say thank you to everybody who uh, does give the $5 a month. And for everybody else, please consider it. It keeps the show going. And um, you know, we got a wonderful staff here. we got to pay and everything. So anyway, love you guys, and we'll talk to you next week. See you all next week.